0: Tonight on the Bill Simmons podcast, we're going to talk to Ryan Rossillo about game four of the NBA finals. And we're going to talk to Chuck Klosterman about the death of Eddie Van Halen. That is all coming up. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. I love the NBA. When game day comes around, win or lose, this is the beer you want. Michelob Ultra, my go-to right now because I'm a late beer guy. Sorry, hate to break it to you. You know, I'll mess around with some other ones, but for the most part, really ever since college, I've been a light beer guy. Michelob Ultra. Not only does it taste great, 95 calories, crisp and refreshing. Put it in your fridge. Watch how people just grab it. All of a sudden, they're gone. I also like Michelob Ultra because they're getting fans closer to the game. Right now than ever before with exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like signed memorabilia and courtside seats. Enter for your chance to win at mclobalcher.com slash courtside LDA 21 and up. This episode is brought to you by Nissan SUV. It's good to stay up to date. I mean, we've seen this in basketball, we've seen it in football, we've seen it in baseball. Once the stats started taking off in the 2000s, everybody had to figure that out. Then I remember in basketball, first it was three pointers. Then it was defensive stats. You just gotta keep moving, you gotta keep evolving, you gotta keep going. Now it's pace and threes. What's it gonna be next, big guys? That's why the 2024 Nissan Rogue has Google built right into its 12.3 inch touchscreen infotainment system. With Google Maps, Assistant, and more, you can stay up to date on everything that's ahead without even needing to connect your phone. Find your next adventure with the Nissan SUV. Learn more about the Rogue, Pathfinder, and Armada SUVs at NissanUSA.com. We're also brought to you by the Ringer.com and the Ringer podcast network, where if you like the rewatchables, we have moved the entire archives to Spotify. It is still available on all platforms. All podcasts from the last 60 days will always be available on all platforms, but the entire three and a half year library of over 150 podcasts is available only on Spotify, including the latest one. We did the 25th anniversary of kicking and screaming. Speaking of ringer podcast, Bakari Sellers He's going to react live to the vice president debate tomorrow night, Wednesday night. So, stay tuned for that. Coming up, Rossillo, Game 4 of the finals first our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, taping this a little before nine o'clock on Tuesday. Lakers just won Game Four of the Finals. Really seemed like there was some hope there that this was going to turn into an awesome series. LeBron, he hit the switch in the third quarter. He hit that long three right when it really seemed like Miami was going to be uh, just not going away. And you could see LeBron realize, like, okay, I gotta, I gotta step it up a little bit. He was terrific, but to me, the story Rissillo was uh the fringe guys these were the guys that you point to and you go this is why they can't win the title kcp rondo who has been on six teams uh the alex caruso but when you win a title those are the guys that end up coming through in an awesome game like that i really enjoyed that game but those were the guys that stood out to me
1: uh yeah so if we stay with that I love that you brought up Rondo because, I mean, it's really pretty remarkable that he can look this good after looking this bad for so long. But the conversation around Rondo has always frustrated me. It's a bit like the Aaron Rodgers thing that's happening right now. Aaron Rodgers was the best quarterback in the league for a long time. Maybe the best thrower of the football we've ever seen. He had kind of two down years. It was real. They won some games, but he wasn't the same guy. And now he's on fire again, and everybody's like, see like, well, no, both things happened. And Rondo's regular season and flaming out with multiple teams where they couldn't wait to get him out of the building and now him turning into this, like both things have happened. So he impacted the game in a bunch of different ways. Those two offensive rebounds. I mean, his first bucket wasn't towards the end of the game, but if we're talking about that was a big
0: buzz it that that was the drive by a lot of bios like a clincher.
1: It was his first basket of the game. I couldn't believe it. Right. But he was, he had those two misses and Van Gundy made a great point. Cause I'm at home going, you're right. Like he's looking at the way they're playing him and he's going, okay, well you guys aren't paying any attention. And both of those were good looks despite them being misses. But, um, You know, I just I just feel like Rondo can get a ton of credit, but it also doesn't balance anything out because I didn't think he was even capable of this. I think a few weeks ago, it looked like you couldn't quite figure out why he's playing. I think in the regular season, Lakers fans were like, why is Vogel keep playing this guy? And then you watch him in the playoffs and you trust him probably as much as anybody out there besides LeBron and AD.
0: I want to get back to Rondo, but you talk about the fringe guys, the fringe guys for Miami. They really needed him tonight. Kendrick Nunn, as House said when we were texting, Kendrick Nunn was N-O-N-E, Kendrick Nunn. He was Kendrick Nunn. All caps. He was just just a train wreck. He looked like the 83rd best point guard in the league. (laughs) And the Drogic drop off. It's not just that, you know, Drogic was a killer in those three playoff rounds. It made a bunch of huge, tough, contested threes, which were a lot like the threes that they were trying to make tonight. It's not just losing that. It's that hero now has to play more, you know, and he gets exposed the more minutes he's playing and then none has to pick up all these extra minutes. And the combo of those two things, it's probably worth eight to nine points a game. I think in these finals, just, just that calibration being off. And it's a bummer because I still think the Lakers probably, um, would have had the upper hand if their fringe guys are playing like this, if everybody was healthy on both sides. But it would have been an awesome series. And I really think Dragic would have given them problems like coming around screens and stuff. And we'll never know.
1: Well, the none part of this is a win every time he takes a shot. I mean, every time he takes a shot, despite his scoring prowess early on in his rookie year, it's never in the flow of the offense. I mean, he just decides right. to do his thing. So really what he is, is a really great regular season, second unit guy. And now he has to play those minutes. You're absolutely right about hero. I mean, his final line looks a little bit better. He just He hit some really tough shots, that baseline shot that bailed him out um, late in the shot clock. But it's, it's a little, it's like, it's great when you have all this confidence in the world, but it's also incredibly frustrating when you feel like a 20 year old is just trying to win you a finals game in game four uh, i think the biggest thing though bill when you talk about what this series could or couldn't have been i, I still feel like human nature is a factor when you're up 2-0, well, you're gonna play differently we saw that in the game three but a great spolstra forget uh spolstra for getting out of that zone because that was a disaster against lebron with his size and getting positioned on catches and then ad running the baseline and you could see even with man to man and undersized it's a completely different game so i think that in Drogic getting out of the zone and if Dragic were healthier, maybe makes this more of a series. But, you know, look, I still picked the Lakers at the beginning because I just didn't really think Miami could hang with them.
0: Back to the fringe guys. You mentioned Rondo. I was going back and reading some of the stuff I wrote about him over the years, like in 2009 and 2010. Remember in 2011, they were talking about should they trade him, should they not trade him? They dangled him for Chris Paul. For like Ray two Bo- years? Yeah, but remember <laughs> when Chris Paul got traded first to the Lakers, then the Clippers... The Celtics were the other team in there dangling Rondo trying to get Chris. Then finally Rondo leaves. And if you, if you just look at the way his career played out, it was the worst case scenario every step of the way, right? Goes to uh, Dallas that goes terribly, has this weird Sacramento run, ends up on Chicago with this, these two different cultures that are fighting each other at the same time. For some reason, he sides with the young guys, goes to new Orleans. Boogie goes down, uh, then goes to the Lakers last year, and that and that was a train wreck. And I had written him off. I don't know about you, but I just felt like, all right, we've seen this happen in basketball before. We have this guy who's super talented, but, you know, he takes a couple hits, goes in a couple wrong directions, and that's it. And I thought he was a write-off. I can't remember. You'd, ha- you'd have to go back to, like, Bob McAdoo and people like that. Bill Walton, I mean, he was injured. That wasn't totally his fault. But Bob McAdoo was somebody everybody gave up on. He he was bouncing around. He was on New Jersey. Uh, the Lakers end up, I think, getting him for like a second Melo's round Melo's not pick. a
1: bad comp, by the way.
0: Yeah, but they, Melo was never in a, you know, a, a key player in a finals game. I was just trying to think of like finals dudes. Oh, of, okay. You know, like just basically resurrections. Because you could see there was this moment at the end. And LeBron's congratulating everybody. The game's not over, but he's... You know, they know they're going to win in the timeout. And he goes over to Rondo and gives him the two hand, two elbows next to the head. Really close. I love you, hug, Because he gets it. Like, the stuff Rondo was figuring out, and it's more than that, because there were plays when he was initiating that gave LeBron little rest. Because LeBron played a lot of minutes in that game. They were hard minutes. He got hard fouled a few times. He had, was guarding Butler uh, on the other end, even though he was going under the screens. But he was putting miles on left and right. And they really needed that second playmaker. So that helped. And then the other thing is, I think KCP stinks. And I can't think that anymore because he he was awesome tonight. That was a huge, huge, reminded me a little bit of Trevor Ariza in 2009 when they just needed this Ariza performance they didn't know they were going to get. And they got it. And he was really good. And he made a couple of huge plays in big moments.
1: And that was a big reason why they won. Yeah, KCP stinking, um, Seems harsh because I know I'm still, just saying
0: he's one of the guys that I just personally are like, yeah he's not good. But I'm wrong. I'm I'm admitting I'm wrong.
1: Yeah, I just think that plenty of teams would find a way to use him with the way he shoots from outside. I mean, granted, his his numbers are probably not high for his career as you'd expect at like 35. He's not going to rebound. He's not going to assist. But he's not really in a position to do any of that stuff. I mean, he's kind of stuck in the corner. And he's like 38% this year. So that's a big plus. And yeah. you still have to close out on him. And, and by the way, like the biggest bucket that he had was after he hit that whole thing kind of fell apart because LeBron hit all of his three throws for the most part tonight, 10 to 12. So that wasn't a disaster when Jimmy Butler missed that three down 90, 88. And it was a yeah. really weird play Corner because three. they had he had Rondo on him. And this is where screening becomes like the players are just so programmed to screen all the time for drivers. They screened, and then he ended up getting LeBron as a defender instead of Rondo. And you're like, the whole reason you do this is to get the original matchup that you had. And then right. Butler misses that corner three. Pope hits a three, and then Pope hits that layup when the shot clock was falling apart. The Lakers had like three AD had a three in there, but there were three really big possessions. The game was still in the balance where Lakers players hit huge shots. Before and and neither of them
0: were, and that was the thing, it was it wasn't LeBron or AD. Those AD three had shots three. in a row. Well, yeah, that that was like the ender. Yeah. 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 But right. those two KCP baskets, and you know, we see this over and over again. That's actually what wins the finals. You don't just need the awesome performance from your best guy or your best two guys. It's these random dudes. And it's like I look back at the 08 Celtics in that game four, and it was Eddie House, James Posey. You know, and the, and those were the guys that flipped that game. And then Allen and Pierce did the rest. But you needed, like, the two randos. I just didn't think the Lakers, if they ever truly got in this position, because y- you could see it in their eyes in the first, like, I would say, two-plus quarters where especially This was Davis, a weird game. This it was. was a really
1: weird game the first half, which I think it, we need to talk about.
0: Yeah, they, you know, I, I think they can get a little front-running sometimes when they're up 11. That's when yeah. they're all doing the muscle stuff. And the, and Miami was just hitting them back and you could kind of see them looking around like, okay. And that was why I thought it was so important when LeBron hit that 30 footer, when Miami had just taken the lead and you could tell he was pissed at everybody and he was like, all right, fuck this. And he just launched one and made it and just kind of kicked it into gear from that point on. And LeBron, we, you know, I don't want to say we take for granted because everybody talks about him constantly, but he's just. This was just a typical game for him, right? 26, 12, and 8. He's been doing this in the finals for, what, 80 games at this point? I don't know how many finals games he's played. 70? It's just like another routine, 26,
1: 12, and 8. Well, this game at the start, you're going, what the hell are you guys doing out there? They were throwing the ball out of bounds. I mean, LeBron had three of the worst passes I think I've ever seen him have in one single game just in the first half. Uh, Rondo threw one away. Pope threw one just straight up out of bounds and you're thinking, okay, the biggest problem you guys had in the start in Game 3, even though they still almost stole Game 3, which felt like it was a Miami game because of the way Butler played, but they had 10 turnovers in that first quarter, and then Vogel, after the first quarter of the interview, was like, hey, what's up with the turnovers? And you're like, all right. But the other part of it, too, is that coming out of that zone, I really felt like the Lakers like the Lakers were playing good defensively, but the Lakers offensively, it just felt like a struggle. Like Nothing felt like, hey, here's the thing that we can go to. There was one play that I counted, Well, there was one, I'll say two. There was a switch where they got AD with Olenek and it was a deep catch and he turned around and finished off the backboard. But then there was another little action at like five minutes of the first quarter where they got at a switch and then Davis rolling hard to the hoop and Rondo gets it to him and and you're like, Why can't you guys even attempt to do some more of that stuff? Like, Mm. do you really need another Markeef Morris three who's been good? Kuzma shot it well again in this game, and he did in game three, or at least he did, you know, in the first half. He'd miss one a little bit later. But getting Anthony Davis with some momentum towards the hoop, the Lakers just couldn't do it. And they don't. They don't do a good job on some of the entry pass stuff with him. I don't think AD fights all the time to get deep possession. And I think a lot of times Miami just does a really good job, whether it's fronting him or always having a double on him, where Davis is going to pass out of the double instead of forcing stuff because that's just the way he's wired. But it was a really, like you're watching it going, like how about LeBron at the end of the first half? It may not seem like a big deal, but he caught the ball with 3.1 seconds and didn't do anything. And looked yeah. like he wanted to pass it to somebody. And again, these are all like small things, but they were adding up in that. What's going on? Like, is this Lakers team really flat? Are they going to lose this one?
0: And LeBron definitely had like a weird energy. I think he was frustrated by some of his teammates. And, you know, I I started to think when we were get, got into that third quarter, like, all right, this is their fourth game in seven nights. He's 35 years old. If his legs aren't there in the fourth quarter, like this... This could get really, really, really interesting. But, you know, back to Davis for a second, because I I thought he was really good defensively. And, you know, you could make the case he's the best defensive player in the league. I voted for him, I think, second for defensive player of the year. And he he swallowed up a whole bunch of different stuff. I thought he was at a really important point after game two, you know, career-wise, big picture, all-timer-wise, where the series was going a certain way and it felt like it was going to be a sweep and it felt like he was going to be like a 35, 15 in the finals. And I was thinking like, where what, what, what do we do with this guy historically now? And I, I was texting with the, uh, my hall of fame pyramid committee, by the way, if you want to be on the committee, I'll send you an application. It's basically just me, uh, my friend house who, you know, and then one other unnamed person. But I was so
1: basically like, <laughs> the thread we have going right now. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um,
0: but it was basically like, wow, Davis. If they pull this off, might he might actually be in the top forty? Like this has just been a completely dominating postseason performance. But now he's slipped a little bit those last two games, and I think the big thing for him, because I don't feel like he's hit his peak yet, as great as he is, he's got to learn how to when teams are playing him like this to just be like, I'm going on the block. I'm just getting the ball seven feet from the basket. And you're you're just not going to be able to do this. You're you're not going to be able to guard me with Iguadala. And my point is, if he learns how to do that, they might actually even be better next year.
1: Yeah, I don't know if that's going to happen because if you were going to do one, you know, and I don't love doing this to some of these guys that are truly special, but then it, because then it turns into like you're dogging them. And here I've defended Anthony Davis basically from day one and, and just said, I don't want to hear about it. He's just on a bad team. But he can, he can be taken out by some defenses. We saw that in that regular season game against Toronto where, like they ran doubles at him hard, and you were like, "Okay, what's going on here?" Um, there were other times though, and like another side note of this whole thing, Dwight Howard. We didn't see him again. It only took a year, Bill. It only took you a year to be right about the Dwight Howard. Not I'm so I was saying,
0: that's my that's my personal win. That's my moral <laughs> victory in the series. Dwight Howard is unplayable in
1: these finals. It's great. Yeah, I'm so, also, I'm so satisfied. <laughs> He's also going to spend a lot of time on the ground. Like when he gets hit, we're going to hang out for a little bit. Um, yeah. And that's just that's just part of it. Little Braxton Miller ish. If you remember that back at Ohio State, which I doubt you do. But yeah, I mean, he still he was so good defensively. Like I know Jimmy Butler's final line. If you just look at it a couple days from now, you go, what was the problem? Eight to 17, 22 points, 10 boards, nine assists. It was a completely different Jimmy Butler experience in this game because Anthony Davis took him on. And when Davis was lined up with him, Butler didn't really want anything to do with it. He just did. I
0: Can you remember seeing a team as good as Miami pass up as many possible layups as they did in that game?
1: Probably Golden State board during the regular season when they just kick it out to as many people as they can. Right, Houston they does go. it all. By the way, Houston does it all the time. Donchus does it all the time. It's a, it's an absolute epidemic in today's basketball where guys just are so convinced they're supposed to kick out on every drive that you're like, you know, you're giving up layups and attempts to get yeah, but to the free throw line. They
0: weren't doing this against Milwaukee and Boston though. They were just taking it to the basket. I think it's Davis. Yeah, that's what I mean. I, I yeah. think and that's why he's not going to get finals MVP. And and honestly, LeBron deserves it after what he did in the second half today and just what he means in general. But um but Rondo third. <laughs> AC. Did you see LeBron was saying the nicknames of the Laker guys when he was talking to Rachel at the end of the game? And he called Rondo Doe.
1: And he's I, like, you know, I didn't catch any of that. No. He
0: said he called Alex Caruso AC and he called Rondo Doe.
1: And he said like, Doe,
0: Doe <laughs> made some big plays, and that's what Doe does. I'm like, who's Doe? Is there a glossary?
1: I'm just glad he didn't call Alex like Steve.
0: <laughs> I'll tell you though, he was good today. I mean, Caruso, <laughs> the best case scenario of him where it's just like, Here's this fucking annoying guy who's in your in your jersey, who's tipping out rebounds and is just kind of relentless and he's not that good, but he doesn't care and he's just that guy. He's the guy he's the guy that you hate playing pickup against. That's who he was in this game. It was effective.
1: Yeah, he's strong too. He had one drive in particular that I was just like, "Oh, that was huge." There were there were little moments where You're right. The secondary guys help these guys out a little bit. I know plus minus can lie pretty viciously to us, but Davis was far and away better than everybody else. He was plus 17 and LeBron was minus two. And to prove that um, plus minus does, because Jimmy Butler's out there for 43 minutes. Remember he started five of five, but that wasn't all against Davis. He got Dwight in that switch. And I kept thinking like, wait, if you're going to get a switch, if you're going to get a Jimmy Butler and Bam switch against Dwight and AD, don't end up with Bam having to try to back down Anthony Davis, which they did the first time. Then he got Dwight. He got that bucket at the end of the first quarter that was a mix up with a Kuzma LeBron switch. But I I thought that what Davis did defensively, even though I was frustrated with him offensively, because the interview, they were like, oh, he was a lot better, more assertive on offense. I'm like, he played 12 minutes and had four points in the first quarter. He wasn't yeah. assertive at all. And, and it was the the... Uh, opposite of that, the, the entry pass thing that we brought up a little bit earlier. But his defense, I mean, it's just stupid. And you know how great he he made that play when Bam in the second half where he had already figured out, oh, wait, Bam's going to want to come back to this side if he stops. And he waited on him and blocked him on the right side. And it was like it was him figuring something out from a move earlier in the game. It's just yeah. so, it's just so much fun to watch him play on defense.
0: What would you think, Bam, 75% in that game?
1: I'm bad at this. You guys all scream 61%, 84%. I don't know how you're all good at figuring out what percent anybody is. I thought he had some awesome moments, so I, I didn't think it was a huge drop-off. I didn't. I thought his drives, like the way he can dribble into getting a shot, the way he can pull up. I thought he had a lot of really good moments tonight. So maybe it was rebounding in defense that I wasn't yeah, paying attention so to. So you
0: do. sound like you're an 80% guy.
1: Yeah, maybe 84.
0: <laughs> 82? I thought he was a little different defensively. I I didn't think he was the monster that he was in the Boston series, but... You know, I also think there's- Might because be because it's not more, Tice. Well, yeah, you're going to be more confident in the Boston series, right? You're the, you're the big kahuna in that series. I want to talk about uh, Butler, but let's uh, let's take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. I love the NBA. When game day comes around, win or lose, this is the beer you want. Michelob Ultra, my go-to right now because I'm a light beer guy. Sorry, hate to break it to you. You know, I'll mess around with some other ones, but for the most part, really ever since college, I've been a light beer guy. Michelob Ultra. Not only does it taste great, 95 calories, crisp and refreshing. Put it in your fridge. Watch how people just grab it. All of a sudden, they're gone. I also like Michelob Ultra because they're getting fans closer to the game. Right now than ever before with exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like signed memorabilia and courtside seats. Enter for your chance to win at mclobelcher.com slash courtside LDA 21 and up. Okay, Jimmy Butler had the fairly iconic game three, really memorable, a hardwood classics, no question, (laughs) awesome, just toe-to-toe with LeBron, one of the greatest players of all time, and really gives it, really gives it to the whole team, not just LeBron, but everybody and controlled the game and reminded me a lot of the best things that Kawhi did last year in the playoffs where he's just not only controlling the game, but controlling the actual speed of the game. And he's just dominating every single aspect of it and controlling it mentally and, and controlling the energy of it, the whole thing. And he was, he was really good tonight. I, Because he didn't really... Nobody else, I think, on the Heat, you would say played a really good game, right? There were some guys who were okay. But I wouldn't say... you know. In the Boston series, they would get the random Duncan Robinson game. They would get the random hero game. They would get the Iguodala half. They would get the Bam game. Nobody really had a great game offensively. He controlled it. I think being guarded by Davis, I can't even imagine what that's like. My point is... He vaulted a level in these finals from how, you know, really the whole playoffs and the whole season, but these finals specifically, I don't think we can overstate how important it is to watch somebody go toe to toe against these great players like he has. And now just thinking about like his place in the league. You know, I you've heard me talk about this for two-plus years as we've been doing these pods. Like, I value this the most. I value the winning guys. I value, like, are, do you show up in moments like this? Um, do the other players respect you? How competitive are you? How 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 much does it mean to you? Do you care about stats? Like, all the shit that I care about, that was one of the reasons I wrote my book about the secret and all that stuff. This guy's the embodiment of this. And now I'm thinking, like, I don't know what my list is. Best eight, best nine. But, you know, he just has to be mentioned now. And I think that's what's changed for him over everything else in these playoffs. Like, he just has to be mentioned as one of the best players in the league now. I don't feel like that's an overreaction.
1: It just depends on how far you want to go with it because then I think sometimes we become really guilty of like trying to have to reassess everything and come up with some big picture topic or observation that can really be more about the moment. I mean, he was unbelievable in game three. He was. I think he's flirted with being a top 10 player at times, but I don't know that he's always been invited into that group, top 10. But then I think, to be fair to Butler, like, why would any of us ever want Carl Anthony Towns before Jimmy Butler? I mean, we can talk about age and all that kind of stuff, but when you really right. break down like where your head is at and you watch two guys, like, are we ever going to see Carly? I think the Towns do something like that in a game three of an NBA Finals with the team down two. Oh, that seems impossible. Um, you know, I'm not going to put him ahead of Kawhi. Uh, the Paul George thing's been a mess. It's been a mess now for a while, despite what his ceiling has been. I'd probably put Jimmy ahead of Russell Westbrook, but the Westbrook part of this has been declining, except for that blip of a few months that got him on an all-NBA team this year. Um, you know, let's talk Harden, because- Well, so it, that's where fair? I wanted to go. I just, okay. Like,
0: is it fair to say, if I'm actually trying to win a title Am I better off
1: with Jimmy Butler than James Harden? I know who I like walking onto the court to, to have the fuck you in him. But I also, to be fair to Harden, you either you really think Harden couldn't have gotten out of the East the last couple of years and put up big numbers in a finals game? You know, so I, we all know I'm not the biggest Harden guy, but I, to be fair here, you know, Harden almost got out of the West two years ago against Golden State. I don't think we should just write off that Harden couldn't do it. Now, would I expect Harden... In game seven, to be brilliant? Uh, you know, probably not. Um, but I don't know if Butler's going to get to a game seven. Is that I fair? Don't know. Yeah, I don't, don't you, know what the answer your is. You're shaking your head a little. Yeah.
0: Well, because I just know what I like in basketball players and the stuff Butler, what he did in game three, that's like, that's all I want. That's what I've yeah, loved for my it. entire life, you know? And it's like, I think just about every good guy probably rolls over in that situation or does the whole. I'm going to try to be the guy and then it goes badly or does it for a quarter and a half or tries to do it, gets frustrated, nobody else is joining him and kind of bails on everybody. We've seen all the variations of it and he did it. And now granted, the Lakers were half asleep in that game and I think the fact that Miami so smartly moved away from the zone and did some great adjustments and Davis was got in foul trouble. There were a lot of reasons that game happened, but I'm just really impressed by him and it made me actually think back to that Philly series where you know he 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 was the most important guy in that Philly team. In that game 7, I remember us talking about him like wow, I didn't realize that Jimmy this was going to be like Jimmy Butler's team but that's kind of how it felt leaving that series and man what a tough loss for them. I've had so many Sixers fans that I'm friends with texting me during these last couple rounds being like this really hurts like we had this guy we traded for this guy it was supposed to be him and and ben and joel like what the fuck happened and i think it's a fair question
1: yeah i mean when you look at these numbers too i mean he's 28 eight boards 10 assists per game in these four finals games he's getting to the free throw line 10 times a game hitting 91 percent of those i mean he wasn't I thought Van Gundy brought up a good point. If they're going to play you belief, uh, below the screen that much, then you got to maybe just tease them a little bit, You know, take a couple of those shots to make them feel honest. You hit the first one, you know, maybe you hit the second out of three, just to keep them a little honest. I'd rather Butler take a three that he doesn't feel entirely comfortable with than, than Kendrick Nunn taking 11 shots in a game. So I think that's something <laughs> Fair. to maybe think about for game play. Like Whenever yeah. I look at somebody taking bad shots, I go, yeah, I'd rather Anthony Davis just post and turn around. You know, I'd rather, I'd rather something else. What I love about Butler, though, specific to that Philly team is yes, it can be abrasive and it's been abrasive. And I don't always love the guy that decides like, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. But it sounds like Philly didn't want to step up for the extra year for him. Um, which sounds ridiculous in the face of going and giving that same money to the Harris, but that's because they, I guess they felt like they'd given up more recent assets, but while Butler's watching like Simmons and Embiid figure out whose team it is. He's like, I'm just going, all right? You guys could sit over there and figure out who's going to stand where and who's not getting enough touches and whether or not you're ever going to take an outside shot. I'm going. And you need guys like that. So even though I think the Butler momentum can take him into a neighborhood with players that I don't know that he's ever really lived in, and maybe I'm not being fair to it, the part about him that I absolutely love is I just know that I'm going to trust that he's bringing the fight more often than a lot of these guys are probably too enamored with.
0: Well, you know, the first time we really saw this, I don't know if you remember this, but I wrote a column right after Bulls, uh, Cavs, no, but uh, Bulls Heat. Okay. So the Heat twenty seven game winning streak. Chicago beats them, and it's the greatest regular season game of all time. It's an awesome oh. game. I don't. Yeah, I wrote that at the time, and I stand by it. It's the re-heatable? best regular, se- best a regular season maybe? game ever. <laughs> Uh, they've won 27 straight. They have San Antonio like two games away. They have a chance to go for their 30th straight against San Antonio. who's the second best team in the league. Everybody's rooting for it. And the Chicago team comes out, no Derrick Rose and it's Luol Dang. It's Noah. And it's this kid named Jimmy Butler. And Butler has, he just kind of belonged. And it was kind of one of those revelation games. So that was the first time I remember thinking like, wow, that, that Jimmy Butler. The second one was when they had that Celtics Bulls series when Rondo got hurt after two games. Remember that when it seemed like the Bulls were going to beat the Celtics. The Isaiah Thomas here. The 8-1, yeah. And Butler that whole series like you could just see. It was like, oh, this is somebody I would want to go down with in a playoff series. This guy's got some real fight. He just didn't have the horses. So, he you know, he's he's the quote-unquote gamer. Um I've love I love seeing him go at LeBron like this, I got to say, I think he's brought out an awesome version of LeBron. It's not like this wasn't there already, but people don't go at LeBron like this. You know, we, we, you think of even back to watching the last dance and Jordan, every time somebody went at Jordan, it was either, it was never somebody who played the same position as him other than Drexler that time. You know, it was always like, he's going against Carl Malone or he's going against Ewing or he's going against Barkley. But it was never same position. And when he went same position against Drexler, he destroyed him. Dino this Raja. This thing, this is kind of what we wanted. Dino Raja. This is kind of what we wanted from the Kawhi thing, right? Butler's giving us what we thought we were getting from the Kawhi series that we actually never
1: ended up getting, sadly. Yeah, I don't know. Because like, the defensive part of this is really interesting. Because Kawhi was really bad defensively now for a while. And yeah. bad in the playoffs. So I don't know what would have happened there. I think they would have just put Paul George on him as bad as all the Clipper stuff was. I thought Paul George at times was really good against Jamal Murray, um, at least effort wise. But I don't think LeBron can guard Butler one on one. I don't. I think at the end of the game three, I mean, when you're doing those drives and the other thing that Butler does, it's kind of nasty. He gets his elbows and knees up. When you go to meet him at the rim, you better be ready because he's got that down perfectly. I'm surprised guys aren't losing their front teeth going and trying to meet him at the rim, or maybe guys are just not as interested. LeBron got into it with him a little bit there, but the elbow missed. But it's not even a knock on LeBron, but like when you're as dialed in as Jimmy was in game three to drive, deep drive, like deep dribble in, and then those turnarounds, there's really not much you can do with any of that stuff. If you were Giannis and you were watching this series and you were
0: thinking about switching teams, and Miami is a team that has cap space, would you be thinking about where you fit in?
1: Mm, I'd probably go. I think. I think I'm going to go sign with my brother in L.A. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which, which one? Th- there should be an agent right out there. I'd be like, Have you met Joe out of Kempo? He's like, hey, what's <laughs> up? I oh, just is? murdered Giannis' last name.
0: It is, you know, if, if you added him and they somehow kept Bam and Hero, they would still be under a rookie contract and then free agent X. Like, you know, I don't know. My question with Butler is, I don't know the longevity of some of these guys. Like the swing guy who is go to goes to the line a ton um, is a physical kind of player. Like those are usually guys with the exception of LeBron that don't usually last in their mid-30s. I this is probably his peak. I don't see. I don't see another level in him. I think this is this is the best we're going to see from him. Of Butler, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely. Think I could see. It, I could see it being like the running back that had the th- four straight three hundred seventy carry seasons. That uh, A Larry Johnson type. He, yeah, not Larry Johnson. Maybe like Emmitt right before he goes to the cart, something like that. I I wanted to ask you about. Um, I was thinking about something weird about this Laker team.
1: Okay, good, because I was just going to call a timeout quickly that with the Butler talk and then Giannis free agency, this is dangerously becoming a... Uh, a f- a, a first-take b- segment? No, no, it was becoming a Bill is upset the Lakers are up 3-1 podcast.
0: No, because they're heavily favored to be up 3-1. Um, I was trying to pinpoint why this Lakers thing felt like a tiny bit off. I don't. I think this would be the first team that won the title that had nobody that had kind of been there from the ground floor in a way where the fans were like, oh, I'm attached to that guy. This is, I think, our first hired gun title team. Because even like the the Heat, Miami, when they win with uh, Wade, LeBron and Bosh, Wade was there the whole time, right? They drafted him. And I was going through all the teams in my head. And I was like, I think this is the first one that it was just basically like putting together a fantasy team. And it worked. I don't think it's ever happened before.
1: Yeah, I I see what you're saying because, you know, I did think it was kind of weird. I was seeing some stuff being debated today on social media about, like, how this is built versus bought. And you're like, look, Butler's a max free agent, too. And they traded yeah. for Dragic. And yes, they drafted Bam and they drafted Hero and bringing in Duncan Robinson and Kendrick Nunn. Like, there's definitely development parts to this, too. but you know, LeBron signed as a free agent, Max guy, and then they traded for Anthony Davis. So, I mean, is it really that different just because Danny green was a free agent too, and they got rid of their draft picks. So yeah, I mean, look, Miami has more development side of it, but it's not like it's it, this isn't like homegrown versus the mercenaries.
0: I don't, I'm not, I don't think that at all. If anything, I think Miami is almost a new team too. Like the, the guy, it's the all longest, new. The that's, longest that's terms the of service
1: guy is like Dragic. Okay, but back to your original point. That's why, like, I kept saying this with the East last year, and then this entire NBA season is that it was all going to feel new. So, whatever those Lakers flaws that would seem overwhelming, especially at the restart, you're like, wait a minute, why can't anybody shoot? What's the rotation? What's going on? Do they really have enough depth? There were just as many things about the Clippers, like, hey, they're ever going to play like two weeks in a row together? No. Yeah. Okay. Am I supposed to buy into Denver? No. Am I going to buy into Houston? Obviously, no. Utah loses one of their big guys at the end of the year, so I think the. The storyline of all this, even with the the unprecedented nature of the whole restart in the bubble, is that whatever it was, it was going to feel new because we're always going to feel like the first version of these teams is flawed because we've never seen them do anything together before. Right. So I think what you're talking about, though, to get it back to you on the unprecedented part of this, like because what Boston had Pearson, the other guys came along. Dirk was there in Dallas for a while. Oklahoma City was all young guys. Miami was bought, but yet it was Wade that was there before. So you're saying
0: Golden State had Curry basically since 2009. Yeah. Even Toronto last year, you know, Lowry had been there for, I think, six years and, um, you know, they had lost. This is the first team I could remember winning a title where nobody on the team had kind of had this tough loss on the team. You know what I mean? Where it's like, oh man, like with the Pierce thing. And I remember writing about it at the time was meaningful because it felt like we had gone through this whole arc with him, right? Where he was this young gun. He was awesome. They almost made the finals. Then he gets stabbed, goes to a dark place. He had kind of this up and down roller coaster ride and then kind of became an adult. And then they brought in KG. And then it, I just remember being so happy for him and with this Lakers thing, it's like, all right, I'm happy the Lakers are back would be my reaction. If I was a Laker fan, we're back, we're relevant. We did it again. Greatest franchise, all that stuff. But I don't know who you would, who you would attach yourself to out of the actual players. Like, would it be Genie bus? Like, I'm so happy for Genie. It's been such a hard
1: road. Yeah, but they don't care. And you wouldn't care either. You wouldn't care. Like if the Celtics won a title and it wasn't, one homegrown guy, like you could talk yourself into. It. Oh, it would have been nice if they were. I think we'd have to talked about something there. to Caruso. You would have They'd been. I like, so happy for Alex. Avery Bradley, finally, I just knew it. I always knew he was more than a combo guard. What about Cleveland <laughs> and four? What about Cleveland and uh Well, they didn't win it until sixteen because Kyrie right. had been there for three years, and then LeBron comes back. Kyrie had been there for five. Them. Well, I meant when the guys came back, but yes, yeah. you're right. I mean because it took yeah, him this two is, years.
0: This is our first this is our first free agent title. Basically. The Miami titles to me are free agent titles. Yeah, but Wade was there though. He they drafted him, yeah, it was but, top 5 is, pick.
1: This feels like a made-up co- category. Why? Because you're acting like this is the only time free agency has impacted the outcome when I think just this because- is what the
0: league. I think this is what the league's like from now on. I think we're going to look at this team as the first of many that a team that got thrown together with these short contracts and then all of a sudden it's like, wow, we just won the title with these guys. Amazing. You know what I mean? Because I felt that way. I felt that way in 08. I remember feeling that that year, like Pierce was the only guy I felt like I had any attachment to. You know, I didn't know. I didn't know KG. I didn't have any attachment to Ray Allen. By the time we got to like 2012, like those were my guys. Like I had been through all these wars with them. I love those guys. But in 08, it was like, I felt like I had just met them. (laughs)
1: were you you less excited then when they won their first title in what, 22 years? No, I was
0: excited that we won I was excited that the Celtics were good again and if you're a Laker fan you're latching on now to the 17 championships thing, even though the first five happened in Minneapolis (laughs) I mean, let's be honest it's one of the most bogus things of
1: all time I dare you to tweet that minutes after the trophy goes up
0: Yeah, congratulations on your 12th title Los I want to Angeles see Lakers. <laughs>
1: that would be a good re entry for you into Twitter.
0: So if I live in Oklahoma City, do I get to be like, man, we've only won one title in 79 <laughs> in Seattle? At least we have one. At <laughs> least we have one. Oh, you've soon won twelve as
1: they- titles. You've won twelve. You did not win 17. I, look, whatever, this is why 2010 hurts you so much because you think it should be, if Rasheed Wallace, Rasheed Wallace could get one more rebound, uh, one more breath
0: his, his lungs were so beaten up by the end of that game. And for other reasons, if Ronald I, no, Nate, didn't hit that three and Nate Robinson playing three minutes, I'll never get over just play him eleven minutes. He would he would have run around. The Lakers love, were afraid we're, of him.
1: Lakers oh, that are up 3, 1. Lakers are up 3-1 in the NBA finals. We're talking about Nate Robinson's rotation ten years Listen, ago. Listen, congratulations on your twelfth <laughs> on your twelfth title. I already knew you were NBA do this. title. I already knew this was happening. Well you should make let's, a congr- shirt. let's
0: congratulate what? everyone in OKC on the nineteen seventy-nine title. This is great. Will
1: you make ringer merch that says number twelve with an LA logo? <laughs> And like a twelve on the back.
0: This <laughs> it's such a great argument because then the Laker fans can come back with, "You won most of your titles when you know they didn't have a three point line." It's like, ah,
1: you're right. I'll I'll admit, I have no I've never Understood. I've never understood that counter. Whenever like somebody would, you know, it's going to happen. It's going to be brought up, and people are going to take their sides in it. But then that, well, the Celtics only won theirs. What? It, well, yeah, but it was in the same city. You know,
0: listen. Five it's of the not, titles were in Minneapolis. End of story. Right. It's not like they're
1: called the Boston Bals- the, the the uh like the Boston Alps. Fair. You, I mean, you you're I live smiling in like now.
0: you, you- <laughs> I don't see many lakes. Let's bring in somebody from OKC to see if they count the 1979 Sonics title. On I'm counting them. I'm messing
1: with you. I just knew this was happening. I knew this segment was gonna happen. So I, I Do, there we go.
0: So if you're an Atlanta fan or you're like, well, we haven't won one in Atlanta, but we have that '58 St. Louis Hawks title, so we do have one.
1: We have the one they won in St. Louis. How mad do you get when American-born players with Greek heritage play for the Greek national baseball team? <laughs> I hope. I hope you. Do. You know what? I was off this. Now I want to. I want to see how long you're going to go. If we do 20 more minutes on this, I'll be. If we only do 20 more, now I'm good. We're going to take a quick break and come back.
0: This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe Spring. On the way, warmer temperatures, more time outside, more time away from your home. Do yourself a favor, make sure you're doing what you can to protect your place and get a Simply Safe Home security system. Comprehensive protection for your whole home, a great way to keep you and your loved ones safe. What if you're going out for Easter for 6 hours? You don't think the burglars are going to figure that out that y'all y'all packed up your car at like 11:30 on Easter and you drove off somewhere? Yeah, all they need is an hour. I'm not the only one singing Simply Safe's praises. Simply Safe named Best Home Security System in 2024 by U.S. News and World Report, recognized for the best customer service in home security by Newsweek. Protect your home today. I use Simply Safe and love it. My listeners get a special twenty percent off any new Simply Safe system when they sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit SimplySafe.com slash BS. Don't wait. That is SimplySafe.com slash BS. This episode is brought to you by Nissan SUV. It's good to stay up to date. I mean, we've seen this in basketball, we've seen it in football, we've seen it in baseball. Once the stats started taking off in the two thousands, everybody had to figure that out. Then I remember in basketball, first it was three pointers, then it was defensive stats. You just got to keep moving, you got to keep evolving, you got to keep going. Now it's pace and threes. What's it going to be next, big guys? That's why the twenty twenty four Nissan Rogue has Google built right into its twelve point three inch touchscreen infotainment system with Google Maps, Assistant and more. You can stay up to date on everything that's ahead without even needing to connect your phone. Find your next adventure with the Nissan SUV. Learn more about the Rogue Pathfinder and Armada SUVs at NissanUSA.com. So Lakers win this one. We assume they're going to win the title. It's Friday night, three days rest. was the bubble of success. How will you remember this whole playoff thing? I'm not talking about the social justice stuff, all that stuff. I'm talking about the quality of basketball, the lack of home court advantage, the quality of play round to round. Did the right team win? Because my I would argue that the right team did win. And you could you could go through the series and be like What the fuck happened to the Clippers? I have no idea. Oh, Miami had these injuries. That sucks. I did a column in 2012 about footnote titles because I don't like the term asterisk. Um, I think there's only been a couple of titles over the years where you could really be like, man, that one gets an asterisk. Like I, I think the 88 Pistons, Isaiah spraining his ankle at the worst possible time. I really feel like the 88 Pistons were better that year, but it's tough to say asterisk because the Lakers still won the title. So I call it a footnote title. I don't know if this will qualify as a footnote title because it's not their fault the Clippers didn't show up. You know, like the Clippers rolled over. It's not, it's not their fault that they stayed healthy and Miami didn't. And I really do feel like they were the best team. They had this amazing combination of guys, this duo that is the best duo we've seen in nineteen twenty years. And it feels like the right team won. So from a basketball standpoint, I'm going to say the bubble is a success.
1: There's no debate. Uh, how who's on the other side of that there's no way this This has been unbelievable um and I love that they did this. I've said this about college football. I said it about the n f l with the n f l stuff that we had this past week. It's like, oh, here we go, you know they they should well, you look baseball had a little rough start there, and it looks like they're going to pull off their season. We're going to have a world Series champ uh however you want to frame this, but they tried, and they tried to pull this off and Just if we go back to the beginning of all the doubt and what's the point and you can't do this, listen to the scientists, listen to the medical people when all of them disagree with each other. And that's where I think I just in the past when we talked about COVID and its impact on life, and at least for us with sports, because it's something I'm clearly more comfortable talking about. It was just, okay. well, why can't you put together a plan and at least figure it out? Can't you figure this thing out? and give yourself a chance of completing the season. Now there's some in the camp that said exposing anybody taking any risk greater than zero is a mistake. I, you know, I don't know if the world works that way, but that's why I look at this and I'm just like, I don't know Adam Silver other than interviewing him a couple of times, but he's been incredible this entire time. Like, I, you know, look, I'm an NBA guy. We all know that. We know how big of an NBA guy you are. It sounds weird to say like, Oh, I'm proud of this league, but I'm proud of these guys. I'm proud of the players for putting up with what wasn't perfect. Um, But I would always think that players wanted to play and that's why they voted overwhelmingly to come back and play. So I don't know how anybody, other than unless they just wanted to zag on a TV show, would look at the culmination of this and think that this was anything but a massive success. And I think
0: it's been a really special LeBron season from the sense of all these other people either folded or they didn't hold up physically or... You know, they're blaming, whatever. And that dude just put his head down and they ripped through everybody they played. You know, from from what they lose to... They looked a little shaky in the bubble. I think they were trying to figure the out... restart, the no, they,
1: were, they were bad.
0: <laughs> no Bradley you know? and right. no Rondo. And I think they were trying to f- kind of figure out what their new identity was and get back to where they were in March. But from that second Portland game on, they ripped through everybody. And it's a really good team. And you think about them historically... Um, best team ever. <laughs> well, the size, you know, if you start matching them up against different teams, the, just those two guys are going to get to 55 points. Like you just have to know that going, going in. again, whatever series you want to play with them. It's like, well, those two are going to score 55. So you got, you have to match that and they're just going to keep throwing out three point shooters who are going to get wide open shots. And if somebody misses a couple, they'll take that guy out. They'll put in the next guy. And eventually, two of them will make a couple, like today, Danny Green, who you would you know I don't think we saw him in the fourth quarter it was m i a and I actually thought he played pretty well in that game defensively at least but um but it, it's it's a weird team. it's a little unconventional because um the physicality combined with the finesse you know where they can crash the boards, but they can also you know LeBron can create these just amazing corner threes, whatever. And I I can't remember seeing another team quite like this. Can you? Like this specific version. I don't know if there's a team I remember that was like this. Davis is the best
1: player LeBron's ever played with.
0: Yeah, I'm starting to, I used to think Wade until they win a title, but now they're going to win a title. So I think that's the, I think him as a two-way guy, I still think Wade in 2011 was incredible.
1: Yeah, I'll give you that. I mean, and then you know, you go back to earlier Wade and his his run, but yeah. I'm probably giving Davis too much credit projecting on what the next couple of years would be like. I mean, eventually this LeBron thing is gonna slow down, I would think. I, I mean it's I don't know. Say, I've given
0: up I've given up waiting for that moment. <laughs> like fuck, he's yeah. 35, he looks fine.
1: Yeah, but if you look at LeBron's run against Portland 27, 10 and 10, against Houston, 26. 10 and a half, seven and a half assists against Denver, 27, 10 and a half, and nine. We're talking rebound assists. Right now in this series, he's 28, 11, eight and a half. I mean, he actually really hit threes all that well in the the middle two rounds. He's been a little bit better after a great start against Portland. Um, But the threes that he's hitting, he hit two bombs today where you just went, okay, all right, like there he is. This is the part where he separates himself, really. And Kawhi had put together like a four year playoff stretch where it was unbelievable. And then now that he has the three-one blown lead and that horrific game seven on his resume, if you start to go like LeBron doesn't ever have that awful game, he just doesn't. It, I mean, you know how hard that. Well, is? he did
0: ten years ago. It's just, yeah, well, really. No, I mean, starting I'd, in twelve, it just stopped happening completely.
1: Yeah. So I don't. I'm not saying there's nothing there, and you know, with that much usage, yeah, maybe there's there's a weak semi triple double in in one of the playoff games you want to dig through all of them in the last decade fine but we haven't had a game from in this entire run um where you know he had 16 in the houston game but if you go back to that game like that thing was over like they, they were they were okay with it so the davis lebron combo bill i think speaks to also um why when you're faced with a trade and you can move all of these things and the reason that trade got criticized so much is that there was a ceiling that could have been great but there was a floor that could have been terrible considering ingram's health stuff where lonza was at where the picks ended up landing you could look at it and go oh this is going to be terrible for new orleans and then there's a version of if ingram ends up being really good you're like you know what at least they got something and a couple other pieces out of this whole thing but that's why you do it because these two guys back when we were in march you go you know what? It's gonna be hard to bet against these two guys because I just trust them probably more than any other duo in the league. Well, especially in games like this when, you know, you know, you knew we were at I love the under, I didn't bet it, but
0: this felt like a slow, methodical street fight kind of game. And what was the I thought, total? I I mean, I don't know, but like the game three total was, I don't know, two sixteen, something like that. So it was probably around there. I didn't even look, but I was thinking about if I was going to bet, I would have bet the under because game fours perennially are the street fight game. They're usually, you know, if you look at the hardwood classics, there's always a lot of game force through the years. It, for the teams have, they've tried all their adjustments. They kind of know what to do against each other. And then it turns it out, turns down to like, what seven guys do I trust? What eight guys do I trust? And they, they kind of go at it. Um, but I think in those kind of games, that's when they get tough because you know one of them is going to go to the line 12, 13 times, right? And tonight it was LeBron. Friday, it could be, Le- could be Davis. could be Davis with like the 14 for 16 from the line. But they're always able to get to the line. Um, they're always able to get these offensive rebounds with Rondo and Caruso tipping stuff back out or Davis just flying in. It's a really good team. I'm impressed. And, that, and the supporting cast being passable I think is really surprising because I didn't, I just didn't think they were going to be good enough.
1: No, and Mark has had some moments of, uh, you know, I've never been in love with him, but and he was, he was washed, playable. right? Yeah. Right. I mean, he's, he's, he's at least playable, right? And Kuzma, who I've been off of now for a while, and you just feel like he's just sort of out there doing his own thing. You know what I think it was to Bill is that we've become so obsessed with the third guy on these teams because that's what it's been for a long yeah. time. It was the third guy with Golden State even before, well, Durant, because it was Draymond. I mean, Draymond's a better third player than the third player for anyone that's on this Lakers team. Yeah. Um, the third guy in Toronto probably didn't really exist, but we still look at that Toronto thing as like great run to them. But if you're doing footnote championships, I mean, let's face it, they weren't gonna beat Golden State with Durant and Clay. Just Toronto's a
0: pretty big footnote. Yeah. Right.
1: Okay. I actually think Toronto gets more of a pass. You know, it's funny how Toronto will be like, oh, you guys overlook us. You don't give us enough credit because we're in Toronto. But actually, because you're in Toronto, you don't get nearly enough shit for winning that title against a goal. Like everybody was just so in love with the Toronto and Kawhi story that I actually don't think that they're criticized as much as an American team, a big American franchise would be winning that title with players and saying, oh, well, wait a minute, that other team didn't have two of their main guys. And again, well, I don't
0: especially think- the way Durant was playing before he got hurt because oh, yeah, he was right. the he was the best player in the league when he went down.
1: Yeah, so my question to you would be, if you run through the last decade, Cleveland had the third guy. Miami had the third guy. Boston had a third guy before that.
0: I think that, that era is over. I think it's a two-guy league now. I think it's switched. Because of money
1: or because of design? Because of money. Yeah.
0: Because the salaries are out of whack. The only way really to have that third guy is if you're in a situation where, like if you're Miami, you draft somebody like Bam, and he becomes a third guy while he's on a rookie contract. That's how you get a third guy. You can't acquire a third guy in free agency. It's too expensive. But they kept
1: they kept talking about it. You know, the Lakers part when it would be when it didn't look as good. And you were right to I don't think anybody that would watch Lakers all year and go like admit it Lakers fans, there were moments where you saw they were supporting cash and like, I don't know. I don't know. But when it comes to 40 minutes from two guys that are top 5 players in the game, that's really your formula. So I don't I don't know that the third guy thing uh is anything where you go, "Oh, I want one less awesome player and I want more depth." because we kept wondering what their depth and their closing unit was going to be, and it hasn't really mattered because those two guys are so good. And like you've pointed out at the very top of this, the secondary guys have been way more good than bad.
0: Much maligned KCP last two years and Rondo. Rondo, the Laker fans were freaking out about first half of the season.
1: They were like, what does impug- Vogel, what does he have on Vogel? You know?
0: Well, you know, Vogel's another fascinating piece of this to me because there was a world in which he wasn't going to be a head coach again. Like the Orlando thing went really bad. He ended up, he got fired, I think with a year to go in his contract and he ended up working kind of under the radar for Brad Stevens doing consultant stuff. I think for free, I don't even know if he was allowed to get paid for it. I don't know how that worked, but was this kind of conciliary type, just kind of learning from Brad, how the Celtics did things and stumbled into that job. I think, I think even when his name surfaced, it's like, well, they're obviously going to hire Jason Kidd. They didn't. And now Vogel, this is, I think, the most improbable coach of a title team probably since Paul Westhead. When Paul Westhead got that job because Jack McKinney got in a bike accident and ends up coaching the 1980 Lakers to a title. The Vogel thing, like, if he didn't get this Laker job, I don't know if he would have gotten another job. And I think they really liked him because they knew he was going to bring a defensive mindset to a team that really needed a defensive identity. They didn't have to worry about the offense part. But he's done a good job. Spo's, I think, the best coach in the league it's him or Nick Nurse. And Spo did all the adjustments, and the Lakers responded.
1: It's been impressive. Yeah, I love Spo. I, I'm right there with you. But this is why I think the whole coaching matchup stuff, you know, it gets kind of stupid. Um, part of the stuff with the anti Brad Stevens things that we've been over, where you're like, oh, you know, like, do you really think he went to bed at night going, like, I have no idea what's going on? I guess I'll just never figure it out. It's SPO. Like, it's just, it becomes kind of ridiculous. But I'm glad you brought up the Vogel point because I heard a different story. I'm not 100% on it, but I'm going to share it anyway. Hopefully, it gets aggregated and it ends up being a thing that's inaccurate and uh, has our names all over it. But I had heard Vogel talked with Phil Jackson because you're absolutely right. Like, when Vogel got bounced from Orlando, you're like, okay, he's done. Like, he's done. He liked, liked him with the Pacers. And then Vogel, to his credit, was like, I was way behind the times. Like, I needed to evolve. I was bringing something to Orlando that wasn't really working. Granted, it's not nearly as good as his team. as the Lakers team. But I had heard that Vogel met with Phil. And then when the Lakers were going through their, what at the time felt like a debacle with the coaching hiring, that Phil told Jeannie, you got to meet with Vogel. you got to meet with Vogel. You're going to like him. He's like, he really, really impressed me. And that's who you should hire. So it would actually make sense because of that relationship and the trust Genie has in Phil. But think how silly it can be and how we treat coaches. Like coaches become the newest, hottest tech stock where you're convinced it's this thing. Like this, this, this city was upset that they didn't get Monty Williams. Right. And they were like, oh, we didn't get Monty Williams and we got Vogel? Really? Like, Again, I'm not knocking Monty Williams, but in the moment, it, you could just be so uh, weird about like oh, this is a hot name. Like, it's just all about the human stock price of these coaches, where if you get a guy on the way down, you think it's a disaster, and somehow Monty Williams becomes this, like, far superior choice, which I'm not saying Monty Williams couldn't win with this team, but it seems, it's not like you missed out on Phil and ended up with Patino. I'm biased on this because
0: I like Vogel. I try to keep it on the down low, but uh, he really got fucked in Orlando. If you actually go and, like, you look at what happened there. It was just a disaster and the organization switched and they're trying to play young guys and tank for draft picks. And that's like your worst case scenario if you're a coach, because you know, that's on your record. If you look at the stuff you did at Indiana, those teams really overachieved and I, they didn't have a top 10 pick, you know, and the, and Granger got hurt in 2012 and that was supposed to be their best guy. He was their most expensive guy and they kind of patched it together and were able to get to the Eastern Finals two years in a row. And I, I always thought he was impressive, but he also belonged to this other era where, you know, you're building defenses around Roy Hibbert and verticality and everything switched that Atlanta series. What was that guy's name? Piro Antich? Piero Antich? Antich. Yeah. 25 feet from the basket yeah, yeah. and the Hibbert pulling Hibbert out and Hibbert's like, what's this? And that's kind of the year basketball really changed in all these different ways.
1: Does Antich not get enough credit? I, I think him.
0: it's people say Steph Curry. I always say, What about Pierre Rantich? <laughs> uh, but that flips the script for him. And then all of a sudden, it's like those Thibodeau vocal types. You got to bring so, some other wrinkle to it. But they figured it out. I thought they did a really good job today with some of their adjustments, especially the way they defended Butler and dared him to shoot threes. By the way, Marcus Smart would have taken 23s if that had been, if you were playing Marcus Smart, that would have been like, Fine, I'll go down in flames. I can't pass this up. It's too, this 25 footer is too irresistible. And Butler was just like, no, I, that's not, I don't want to do that. I I would, I would rather do this and kind of played into their hands a little bit. And you're right. I think he probably should have taken a few of them. LeBron did the same thing. They were going under on LeBron. Go ahead, knock yourself out from 28. And then it's like, all right, fuck you. And he made two of them. And then, you know, they had to recalibrate what they did. I thought it was a really good game. I I actually would watch this game again because I thought there was a lot of high-level stuff going on on both ends. And it wasn't, like, especially well-played. There were a lot of turnovers, a lot of sloppiness. But the chess match of it, I enjoyed.
1: It was weird, though, because it was one of the first times it felt a little dead. Um,
0: and Well, because I think they were tired. It was four and seven nights, four games and seven nights. I, I felt like the legs weren't totally there,
1: but I'm talking like the whole thing, the app, like granted, and I'm not making a, a bubble joke here at all where, you know, okay, we get it. Hey, pack crowd tonight or, Hey, look, it's yeah. just like, all right, we got it. We got all that content out there. The jokes about nobody being in there, but I, I would say like, there was even a different rejoin music that they used that I hadn't ever heard before. That sounded like a bad video game. And I just was walking around my house, like during the commercials, kind of just not pacing because it's not like I bet on the game or I have a rooting interest, but I'm just going, this is just this whole game feels off. It feels weird. But I would agree that there were little things that you would see where you go, you know, there's just, just little adjustments. And Van Gundy's always pointing them out all the time, which is a great help, you know, because I don't think all of us pick it up as well as those that have played at a high level or have been coached at a high level. I was glad coach. they
0: talked about the zone stuff because I felt like that was a really important subplot. And I was waiting for them to bring it up. And then they finally did. And they actually went into what they were doing, which I thought was cool.
1: Yeah, because the zone breakdown, everybody always knows this, but you want to catch it in the middle of it. And it's entirely different when it's somebody lebron size catching and making the decision there. That it is the Celtics wings. You know, and those Celtics wings aren't necessarily small, but LeBron's just a completely different level. And then you throw in his passing vision and then it's like, okay, which side of the baseline do I want to get to the Anthony Davis? That's why early on, I'm like, okay, well, this is, especially once LA woke up after six minutes in game one, I go, this isn't going to be a series at all. And then you add to the injuries. Four titles. It's impressive. For
0: LeBron. He... Kobe had five, but Kobe was the best player on two. LeBron has four as the best player on four. Um, you're talking about Russell with eleven. Jordan was six. Mike and I think had five. I mean, they didn't even have the fucking shot clock for those, but I think we have to at least mention them. And then LeBron was two four. of those in the
1: Tri Cities though? <laughs> I don't remember.
0: I know the Laker fans know all about those Minneapolis titles. I, I know there's a lot of big Jim powered fans I've noticed in May. I remember Beach. a doubleheader with Rochester <laughs> and the Tri-Cities.
1: And they had this shifty
0: Italian two god. Four. So if he gets to you, know, probably the favorites next year, too. He gets to five. Now it's now it's you're really putting together the totality of the of the career case versus MJ, which is how he beats MJ. Because I don't think he beats him with the peak, but if it's career, it's going to be unassailable at some point. Wait, so you
1: think think it's still open to debate? Will there be a last dance part two? It'll come right out before the finals start again? I think
0: I'm always going to say MJ, but the case for LeBron will be the career. It'll be the totality of like two, two solid decades of a dude who won titles, you know, in 2012 and Four in between 2012 and 2020 and all of these top three MVP finishes, four MVPs in five years, titles for three different teams. There's going to be this, re- all the point assist records he's going to break, all the playoff records he's going to have. There's going to be the totality of the case that people are going to be able to waive when they're defending it.
1: There's something I want to bring up. Um, yeah. Because for me, it's MJ and it was reinforced watching him close out every one of those games we went back and watched and i'm not just talking last second shots i'm talking plays with two minutes left i'm talking that lakers finals game that we watched where he goes length of the court and pulls up and sends it over time and changes the entire series uh, it was a reinforcement of something now i've always argued hey skill wise i don't think there's this big gap and i think that sometimes the resume thing gets really stupid where you'd go would anybody ever argue that joe montana was better than brady now because brady lost three of them Like, of course not. You you should. Is it just because Brady has a little bit more? I mean, Magic Johnson with five rings still doesn't get enough credit when you're like, look, in his peak, he made it to nine finals in 12 years.
0: Oh, I forgot Magic when I did the rings thing. I'm sorry, Magic. Yeah. Magic has five.
1: So I saw, you know, some of the MJ LeBron content that you just can't avoid. And the pro MJ crowd that look, it's just like politics. Who's ever on the far extremes? I can't stand either one of them, <laughs> right. Like whatever group is like so far away from the center. It's just like, I can't stand either of you. And that's how I feel about like psychotic MJ or psychotic LeBron guy. But when it's brought up that LeBron is doing this at age 35 and then Jordan fans are like, Oh really? Cause what was Jordan doing at 35? And you're like, Hey assholes. One guy entered the league at 19. The other guy entered the league at 21 He missed almost his entire second season, and then he missed basically two full regular seasons, and then at 35, 36, 37, didn't play. And I always thought the last two Jordan years add to his legacy in Washington for what he did as opposed to detract from it, Um, but at 31, 32, 33, 34, to say that LeBron at 35, never missing any seasons... And entering the league two years younger than MJ, that that's somehow the same type of mileage. It just isn't. It just isn't. I think MJ's better. I'm siding with MJ in the big picture thing, but that's a very bad anti-LeBron argument. Assess.
0: Talked about it a million times, but the the advantages just favor the modern athlete versus the guys from MJ's era. It's, you can't you can't compare the longevity because it's not fair. The the stuff I remember. I talked about this on a pod five years ago because Maverick Carter told me about like just all the money LeBron spends on his body to keep himself in tip top shape. And cause I was like, what's the one thing people don't realize with LeBron He's like how much time, effort, energy, and money he puts in his body. Like he wants to stay at his peak performance level at all times. And the reality is in 2015, 2020, whatever, there's more ways to do that. There's better everything. There's better knowledge of your body, all that stuff. And that's when, that's when it gets really hard to compare guys from different eras. You know, MJ's era was just starting to figure that stuff out. But when you were 35 in MJ's era, you were 35. You were feeling it. You know, it wasn't like it is now. And that's why the more I think about this greatest player stuff, I almost feel like you got to do like 20-year eras. Because I think each era is so different. Russell
1: was well, Russell you gets know, no credit whatsoever. For the I first mean, 25
0: years, he's hands down the greatest player ever. And then Kareem for the next 15 years is hands down the greatest player ever for that era. And then it's MJ. And now it's LeBron for the last 20. And maybe that's the way we should look at it. You should look at it like generationally. Because so I don't know how you can. Comp- I-, I had a lot of trouble doing in my book. I'm I'm doing this pyramid and I'm putting like Bob Pettit next to Carl Malone. And it's like, I bet it played nine years and was this balding dude who was, you know, great score rebounder but playing in a league where every every team had one black guy. And it's like, how am I supposed to compare him to Carl Malone? This is apples and oranges. Well,
1: but, no, I'm with you on that one. I don't think we should just have to do time machine all the time because it completely devalues anything the previous generations have done. Uh, I, I just don't. Now, the LeBron MJ one, to me at least, is close enough. I just don't like that this idea that LeBron is being lauded as the only one that's ever done this with 35 when Jordan was doing this 34 35 and it's like yeah but it's just you're you're basically like there're extra seasons there that LeBron has played to get to this point but if you're going to go science on me I can't counter that. So I've I've struggled with look I don't I didn't write a book. I don't have the definitive history of basketball book on my credits but I've struggled with being rea- like real about what would happen in the time machine version of this while also not wanting to discredit these guys because if we're just doing rings then Russell gets dumped on continuously in all of these arguments like why is Jordan just the best when we're talking about Bill Russell and his game 7 record and granted some of the stats are ridiculous because he just dribbled up the court and took a shot immediately so that's why you have 40 rebounds in some of these games when you look at the possession totals but uh, well the one, th- but the it's, one it's, thing it's I impossible. really value it's impossible to solve
0: The one thing I really valued with that that I really, when I was trying to figure out my book and I read every book and tried to get all the different vantage points I could is there is like real value to the quotes from the people who were there watching it. And everybody who was there for Russell was like, this is the guy, like this is the the greatest force we have. If he's on your team, you win. And it's just everybody saying that everybody who played against him, his teammates, all that stuff. And it's the same stuff people are saying about MJ and, You know, I think LeBron has a chance much like Kobe did when Kobe in 08, 09 and 2010 turned himself into a top 10, top 12 all time guy because of this kind of second prime he had. That's what we're seeing with LeBron now, you know, like there's a world in which like 2017, 18 range, it should have started to tail off and it just didn't. And now he's with Davis. He's got this cohort. Uh, who's there at least another year. I'm, I'm, I think, I don't think Davis is going to leave. So he has, I think Davis is
1: going to do a shorter deal. I like, we've talked about, you know, I thought what we talked about was smart because other teams are never just going to admit defeat. They're going to play angles. They're going to hope, you know, like anything you never know. I mean, when LeBron left Miami, the, the 2014 bill, remember most people thought he was going to do one more year and then he'd probably bounce. And it was so ugly in that second series, the rematch against San Antonio, that LeBron was like, all right, you know what? It's time to go on. Wade isn't playing a ton. It's something I brought up before. I think people, for whatever reason, resist this information, but it's true. And LeBron decides, so you never know, there could be things, weird things that would happen. What if the Clippers had beaten them in the Western Conference Finals? And then all of a sudden there's turmoil and they're like, oh, this isn't the right coach. All the things that happen with negative outcomes to these different teams. But the way this is going right now, it would be, it just seems impossible that Anthony Davis would let Clutch uh, advise him the entire way. Get him to LA, get him out of New Orleans, help out their guy too in LeBron and then say, oh yeah, let's go have you sign somewhere else.
0: And KCP, he wins too.
1: Yeah, KCP. He, he, they got
0: a couple contracts, and he actually came up big. The funniest thing would be if Davis went to the Knicks after this, because yeah, then the happening. Laker fans would be in the same situation the Toronto fans were last year with Kawhi, where you're like, ah, uh, well, you want us? Ah, uh, good luck. Thanks. Uh, all right, Rosillo, you have one more podcast
1: this week. Yeah, Matt Leinert, USC legend, oh. Arizona Cardinals legend, Rob Stone coworker. That's right. I haven't seen Rob since I moved here. Well, he has
0: got four kids. I don't, you know. He's, yeah, I he's don't think we're underwater. a good fit. Yeah, he's we're kinda, not a good fit. I, he's basically just a chauffeur for his kids. Uh, all right, so you're on that pod, and then we'll probably do some sort of wrap-up pod next week here, but that draft's not for another six weeks. I don't know what they're doing about free agency. Now, I've heard free agency might be December 1st now. I, I It seems like they're stringing everything along because they know the right, next season's not going to start anytime soon so they might try to elongate things I'm sure you've heard the same
1: yeah I think our info what was it two weeks ago we were talking about the start of the season I don't know if it was last week or the last one we did but yeah we'll, so, well let's do one more so yeah my liner pot will come out on uh, on Thursday and we have a professional life coach that's going to join us actually a famous guy oh. to give some life advice
0: all right Bricello, good to see you Thanks, remember man. the Lakers only won 12 titles Put it in your fridge. Watch how people just grab it. All of a sudden, they're gone. I also like McLoab Ultra because they're getting fans closer to the game right now than ever before with exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like signed memorabilia and courtside seats. Enter for your chance to win at McLoabUltra.com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. This episode is brought to you by Verbo. You know, it is already stressful enough to deal with airports, delayed flights, bad weather. You want your actual where you're staying experience to be perfect, to be lights out. You don't want to have to worry about anything. When you book a vacation rental, you want to know exactly what you're paying ahead of time. The stress of getting hit with unexpected cleaning fees after your stay that can immediately cancel out all the great time you just spent unwinding. Thankfully, when you book with Verbo, you can see the total price upfront. There are no unpleasant surprises and the savings do not stop there, my friends. When you book with Verbo, you earn cash back toward your next vacation through the One Key Rewards program, letting your money do the work for you while you've got your feet up. So while other vacation rentals can feel like a roll of the dice, relax, knowing you booked a Verbo. Book your next private vacation rental in the Verbo app. All right. I called Chuck Klosterman earlier today to talk about Eddie Van Halen, who passed away at the age of 65 today. Uh, We did it on short notice. Did not need prep for this one. He was one of the true icons of my childhood. And here's that conversation right now. All right, we're taping this 1.30 Pacific time, this specific piece. Chuck Klosterman is here. Just found out Eddie Van Halen died about a half hour ago. And this is one of the few people that I feel like we could just turn the mics on and go and talk about. I'm sad. The guy was an icon. Hard to imagine. uh, Hard to remember music without him, at least for me. Somebody you've written about a lot, what was your first reaction
2: to his death or to Van Halen in general? Because just the whole thing it, well i mean it's, it's his death is is of course sad in a sense, it does feel like he has been dying for a while. I mean, there was a a real strong rumor that he had died I think about three months ago um and then he went like went to a tool concert after the you know seemed like he had recovered um. You know, I I, 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 my relationship with Van Halen is, you know, I met him one time when I interviewed him, and that was very cool. But it is the longest relationship I've had with any musician as a consumer. I mean, it was like, so I'm the seventh kid in my family. One of my brothers was 11 years older than me. And uh, he had like a Monte Carlo and he would drive me and my sister to school and we would listen to the first Van Halen album on a track. This is like when I was in kindergarten, I
1: think mm. first
2: grade. Um, so I, I, like, I didn't know what it was or who Van Halen was or really even like the a conception of what rock music meant. It was just like, you know, music was music. Um, but I, I liked those songs then. I liked them when I was six. And then when 1984 came out, it was almost sort of surprising to me that this music that I got into as sort of a normal kid, normal adolescent, was connected back to this this early thing, you know? And I, I'm i sure that there's probably no musician who has sort of shaped my taste and what I like about music, and in a, to a degree, popular culture, than Eddie Van Halen, because you know, he was just like, obviously, technically amazing guitar player. He was also uh, sort of underrated as like kind of a rhythm musical person, like in in terms of the way the songs were constructed. But I mean, the big thing, almost more than anything else with him, was the tone of the guitar. And whenever people talk about guitarists, you know, they kind of get bogged down in this Kind of argument over, like uh, you know, uh, the ability of their hands or whatever. The real key is the sound that the person is able to pull out of the instrument. And Eddie Van Halen is, along I guess, with Tony Iommi, the most copied hard rock guitarist. But it has really never been replicated. I mean, because people cannot replicate the tone of his instrument, you know, and, uh, it's, it's, I don't know that I, I, that's kind of just what I think about. When I think about this is just the way Van Halen songs sound and how instantly recognizable they are. Even if he's doing things that a lot of other musicians, you know, could have done in eighth grade or whatever. It's, it sounded different when he did. It, you know?
0: Yeah. I feel like he was a mm-hmm. one one you know, when I, when I think of like, all right, what made this guy special? It's like, I don't even know who I would compare it to. I know, I know Hendrix was dropped with him, stuff like that. But for for me, like growing up as a kid in the 80s, they were the first band that seemed to matter after the classic, classic rock guys, right? And all of those bands. And they were like the generation that kind of belonged to the generation I was going into. And it was like, well, these are our guys, Van Halen. And when 1984 became as big as it was, it was really kind of stupefying in the moment. It was like, because they they were they were over there as this stadium rock band, this new generation. But then to watch them become massively popular and be on MTV every hour was kind of crazy to watch. And and there were some people who loved Van Halen at the time who didn't totally like it.
2: Oh yeah, they, the, the, and, my brother who I mentioned, my brother hated 1984. He right. hated the fact there were keyboards on there. He liked the song Panama, but like he thought like Jump was terrible. He thought all Waves is terrible. Um, There was always part of that, you know. I mean, Van Halen still felt like a young band in 1984. Like they had several records, but um, it's just you know it's there are some individuals who just kind of create these shifts in musical culture, and he was one of these people because Van Halen, but specifically. Well, it wasn't just him. It was him and David LeRoth, Roth, I guess, who changed sort of the caricature of what hard rock and metal was. That prior to the first Van Halen record, it was really kind of built in this like black Sabbath, deep purple, um, just that there was a, a, a you know, a UFO maybe. It's like these bands who were, uh, seemed to only kind of work in this, in this one sort of limited range of the, particularly the kind of person who'd be into it. And, you know, Van Halen made metal less heavy, more melodic, and much more inclusive in the sense that Van Halen had tons of female fans. And I mean, they're just like, I really remember, I hope I don't get this wrong, but I remember like an interview, I'm pretty sure Billy Corrigan, did with Eddie Van Halen. This is probably twenty years ago, maybe thirty years ago now. Um, and they were talking about Sonic Youth and how Sonic Youth had given an interview. I think I, don't know, I think it was Kim Gordon or something. Maybe it was Thurston Moore talking about how how what a bummer it was for uh, like Sonic Youth to have to play in Iowa and have to like play in Nebraska and stuff, and how much they hated it. And what Billy Corrigan was sort of celebrating was the fact that Van Halen was the exact opposite of that. They were like playing in the middle of nowhere is the same as playing in New York or in California. It, is the, it was the most almost like consciously monocultural thing that there was no limitation as to who could be a Van Halen fan. You could like them for all these different reasons. You could like them seriously. You could kind of like them ironically. You could like them as a pop band. You could like them as somebody who's like, uh, the musicianship is, is so incredible, you know? I mean, I just, I, I don't know if it's, I mean, I, I would say it's impossible now for there to be any kind of musical artist that would be as sort of across the board acceptable, as a band like Van Halen.
0: was. Well, to continue that point, you think about the concept of approval rating with athletes or musicians, things like that. And you go through all the famous bands and, you know, like take Led Zeppelin, for example. Huge backlash to them, pretty much from when they hit their peak all the way through. And yeah, I remember you wrote a great piece for Grantland about, um, what was it, one of their last concerts? Yeah, on their, YouTube? Their,
2: their, their Nebworth concert.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Van Halen... Up until they broke up, you know, they they got a little bit of backlash with 1984 just because as you said, it was Eddie on the on the keyboard and there and it just seemed to some people like it was an obvious sellout. I didn't feel that way at all. I just felt like they were smart. It was smart to put your music on MTV. But for the most part, as the years have passed since, at least the David Lee Roth era, I think is about as respected of an era as I can remember from a band, you know, even as I, but like my son got into rock music, I don't know, three years ago when he started playing the bass and it was fun to introduce him to these different bands. And he really like kind of kick-ass old school rock. And I was like, oh man, I can't wait to play him some of these Van Halen things. And watching him react to some of these Van Halen songs, they're just bangers, man, they're iconic. They're going to live on for as long as we have music. They're going to have
2: nine songs everyone's
0: going to love forever
2: i mean there was some pushback against the early van halen records for From two who? reasons one well one that was this it was the, the loudness and the volume of it A- actually similar to when you know it's it's odd eric clapton we don't think of eric clapton as this deafening guitar player but when eric clapton was new that was the knock on him why is he playing so loud van halen was the same way i, I think robert kriskow wrote about them in the village voice and said it was like music for aircraft carriers. That's <laughs> right. kind of how he described it. The other thing was is that Eddie Van Halen did you something that as is often the case, an innovation that a lot of people sort of, uh, kind of perverted, which was the idea of guitar playing almost being this athletic endeavor where it's that, that it, it wasn't just something, um, that, uh, that like, oh, okay, here's the best way to describe it. So the first Van Halen Records coming out in 1978, that's like the height of punk music, okay? And the the draw of punk music for a lot of people was like, anybody can do it. You can just buy the instrument and go to your garage and you can do this too. It's something anyone can do. But Van Halen was the ultimate example of, you can't do this. Like you gotta sit in your garage by yourself for three years to play one of my songs. And he did create this distance between the artist and the person who was receiving the art. Like there was a huge chasm there. And I think to some people that was just a real unlikable thing because well, on the one hand, well, while Eddie Van Halen is making this music that like they say is very inclusive, anyone can be a fan of it. It wasn't something anybody could do. And, you know, uh, uh, I, I've, I've used this example much of other times. It's like kind of like how people have talked about, say like Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe, whereas like Jimmy Connors seemed to love the crowd. And John McEnroe was almost like telling the crowd, like, shut up.
0: Right. Let me do my thing. I'm a genius.
2: Yes. Yeah. Like, like this is hard. Like I don't, you know, um, and and I think some people got that sense from Eddie Van Halen. I mean, there were like, also, you know, Eddie Van Halen was extremely dismissive of the guitar players who sort of, uh, copied what he did and used him as an influence. He, he didn't really seem, I mean, when I did that, I did a story on him, um, for billboard and, you know, I don't, we'll never know how totally true this is, but like his, the big thing he always insisted in my interview and in many interviews is that the last record he had purchased was Peter Gabriel. So in wow. 1986 that he had not bought any record since then that you know, didn't couldn't name any Guns N' Roses songs, couldn't name any Metallica songs, didn't even know who Radiohead was. Could name one song by that Randy Rhodes played on. Like almost this idea that, like he said, like he liked listening to his car, the engine of his car more than music. And his wife was like, "Yeah, it sucks. Like we're in this. You know, we can't play the radio or whatever." So that he did have this idea that he was really separate from the kind of music that he's associated with. But then interestingly, at the same time, he would occasionally on almost every Van Halen record at one point tried to sort of reillustrate that he was not just somebody who could play a lot of different notes, but he could play these heavy riffs that would sort of make other bands who doing the same thing seem, uh, you know, like cheap or whatever. Like, I mean, he's a complicated guy. There's weird things about him. He had a very weird interaction with Nirvana one time where he said some things about uh, another guy in the band that, of course, now is really problematic. He, 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 the other dudes like Sammy Hagar and Michael Anthony and a lot of these other guys have mentioned that there's kind of these two different realities, like how Eddie Van Halen saw the world and how it actually was. So it's not like he is this you know, untouchable figure, but he is an untouchable musician. You know, I mean, uh, he was he's my favorite guitar player. He'll always be my favorite guitar player.
0: I was thinking about the concept of when they're at their peak, what they were like in an arena, which I never got to see them with Roth, like in that whole era. I just, I wasn't old enough. And, you know, even if I'd gone to see them when I was like, I don't know, 15, I, I don't think it would have resonated the way it should have. But a lot of their stuff has lived on on YouTube and you can see it like it's different there's something there's an electricity to some of their concerts there's stuff i think starting in maybe 78 but you go through and they're just playing in these different nba arenas basically or hockey arenas and you know roth was for his limitations as a singer was an incredible stage man and What Eddie was able to do and, you know, especially those long riffs that he used to do and people were just losing their fucking minds. It was like, he was like the Messiah, you know? And I I don't, other than Guns N' Roses, that little three-year run they had, um, can you think of another band in the last 40 years that could own an arena like that?
2: uh i mean i don't know there probably are a bunch of bands i mean metallica is a good arena band i mean you youtube yeah metallica is the, a good one i mean there's there's a there's like uh, the, some ways the ability to be good in a really large space is at times less complicated than being in sort of a normal size venue because you know if you're playing to people who are a quarter mile away from you. Like if you look at the footage from like the Us Festival in 1983, where they're playing. It's, inc- people,
0: it's incredible know. by the way. Yeah. You
2: yeah. Know, that, that like, it is, it's like the difference between being good and bad. It's like it's almost hard to tell if you can hear it, it's good. But Van Halen was good in any size place. I mean, I, I like, I've been extremely lucky in my life. And one of the most interesting things that I've ever been able to experience as someone who covered music was van halen performed at this bar club i guess in new york called the cafe wa it's like 150 people were in there like i remember going to this because um for a lot of reasons but one was that we didn't really believe van halen was going to play like it was such a small place it was like well van halen just was, is it all a joke or will they show up into a press conference could they possibly be playing you know acoustically but they just played regular music They just plugged in their electrical instruments and they played so i was able to stand six feet away from eddie van halen while he's playing these songs and it was surprising to me how it seemed like it was almost more impressive at a small scale than it would have been at a large scale but i mean that's you know that's there are people who can play small rooms and there are people who can play big rooms and some people can play them all yeah. Right.
0: I think it's hard to be great in a huge space. And I, and I think that's separated a lot of like when you're talking about the levels of the great bands, like the bands that can own a football stadium and actually still be really good. It's a, that list is a lot smaller than who could dominate a club. I think um one thing that I loved about just having Van Halen in my life the last 40 plus years is the classic arc of they're kind of the prototypical music act, right? Where it can't last, the best version of it can't last because it never lasts in music. It's always four to five to six to seven years. And then something has to happen. You have to break up. And then they kind of reinvent themselves with this Sammy Hagar thing. And it's just good enough that it becomes controversial in its own way. Like it was like, is it okay to like this? Because some of these songs are good. And the old Van Halen people are like, no, 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 no. This sucks, man. It's the old ways. And it became, I don't know, a pretty good musical argument there for a couple of years because I actually thought Fifty One Fifty, it wasn't as bad as maybe it could have been. It got bad later when you know Gary Sharon joined the band, all that stuff. But they did what? it. Just was fun to watch the arc of them, and then Roth tried to make a solo career, couldn't make it. He clearly needed Eddie. Then they finally reunited, and it wasn't wasn't the same.
2: Well, at the time, Fifty One Fifty was technically their biggest record. Yeah. Like that that opened at number one immediately. It was it it doesn't it it's hard to sort of it doesn't feel that way now, but Van Halen was at first more commercially successful with Sammy Hagar than they were with David Lee Roth. The idea though is that you know, somehow that that the shift that they made was kind of away from this kind of bombastic over the top party music. To something that was more for, like, kind of more middle of the roadish, like, you know, I think the first, like, I, I did this thing for New York Magazine a couple years ago where, like, I rank all 131 Van Halen songs. I remember. And, and the last song, like, the 131st song that I put on there is is uh why can't this be love which was the first song of 5150 the first single um and the reason why is not because the song is so terrible but it did kind of illustrate this huge shift in what the band seemed to be about you know um now as i've gotten even i mean older and older the semi-hagar material actually seems much better to me because i was I was so against that shift. I mean, I was definitely was sided with David Lee Roth, like eat him and smile. I thought was so superior to 5150. Like I was almost like a caricature of that, of that side of the argument. Like it was just, I wouldn't listen to Van Halen after for a while after that shift happened. Um, now it doesn't seem uh, that bad. It seems pretty good, actually a lot of it. And it, it also, I think allowed Eddie Van Halen to just kind of, even though the music he made gener for the most part wasn't as good as the stuff with Roth, it was I think allowed him to sort of follow uh, a trajectory that he couldn't have done if he had stayed with David Lee Roth because there was just certain limitations in the band with Roth as the singer.
0: You know, I think back to I was, I'm a teenager, obviously, and the police break up and Van Halen breaks up. And it happens relatively close to each other. And you know, it it was my first experience with that, where you're going, wait, so they're not going to make any more songs? Like, are they, you know, that this is just over? And just kind of like this loss that you feel, which I think you feel sometimes with sports too, if you have a favorite team or a favorite group and then somebody leaves for free agency or gets traded or whatever. And you're like, oh man, I guess we're not having that anymore. It was interesting that Van Halen and and the police so close where they felt like they were at the peak of their powers in a lot of ways, and then the plug got pulled, which really has only happened a handful of times in music. I mean, we've seen a million bands break up, but usually you see the writing and the end of the wall in some way. In this case, they were two bands coming off the most successful albums they'd ever had, and then it was just over.
2: Well, okay, but on the one hand, you have Sting, who I think believed... I can have a solo career that's uh, bigger than my career with the police. And I can play any kind of music I want. And he was out. right. Well, he put a lot of records out. I mean, if you go on Spotify and you look at Sting's solo discography, it's like, I had no idea he put out that many records. I mean, yeah. Van Halen, it's not like, okay, so, so, you know, broth and Van Halen split and then devastating. Well, it was, but you know, it was, it was clear that there was going to be more David Lee Roth music. And then the assumption was like, well, okay, so, well, Van Halen, he has sort of three options. Some people thought maybe he'll just like start scoring movies and become kind of more like a Steve Vai figure where he's like kind of making instrumental records with his brother. Another idea was that um, they would try to get somebody who was sort of like, like a Roth clone, uh, maybe an unknown person. um, Or, they would kind of move in a different direction. Now, they one of the people that he wanted to have in the band was Patty Smythe from the band Scandal. Remember mm. that song, The Lawyer is? Oh, they, yeah. Yeah, they have a friendship. They had a friendship, you know. So he was like, well, maybe her. And she was like, well, that could be kind of odd because it's like being a woman in this band, it's going to be obviously under the microscope. They get Sammy Hagar in. And, uh, you know, and they were actually, in that transition, is I mean, seamless is a weird way to say it, but they just they just kind of keep going. Like there was there, there it's not like they made one record where they were figuring things out. I mean, I think most people who like the Sammy Agar period of Van Halen prefer the first record, that they think that record is the best, and that's so that started off pretty well. Um, and I I know you'll probably kind of get this reference. I mean, okay, so do you remember the season of Dukes of Hazard where there was The Cousins? A- yeah, we're like Coy and Vance. Yeah, um, I like, got a lot of yes. jokes
0: out about that yes. way back when. Okay, yeah.
2: so so like the two, so like Bo and Luke leave the show for a year, and Coy and Vance come in. I fucking hated those guys. Yeah. Well, I what, what my my point is that I think that in some ways Eddie Van Halen kind of perceived his guitar as as the General Lee. That's like that. It doesn't really matter who I put in this car. It's like you know. It's like that is the the foundation, and and the reason that that Eddie Van Halen has consistently had issues with singers. I mean, like you know, the reason that they kind of you know Roth several times, Hagar several times, the one thing with Gary Sharon. they uh, had almost got a you know made a record with a guy named Mitch Malloy at one point. Um, I mean, he he definitely like saw Van Halen as a musical endeavor and not a lyrical endeavor like he would claim he didn't know the lyrics to a song like panama you know and and it was also interesting that he was he would claim he didn't remember writing panama that's like he would just go into a hotel room while they were on tour and drink vodka and do cocaine all night and play into a tape recorder and when he woke up in the morning there was songs there you know he kind of almost made it seem like this magical experience. you know, so it was like he didn't remember writing the songs he couldn't sing. It was a weird deal. But uh it just, I don't know. I uh, I'm, I'm glad sort of that Van Halen now is, there was a period where it seemed like Van Halen was going to be one of the groups that just kind of disappears. Who was huge. And then just no one talks about it. I mean, like you see this happening, interestingly, to a degree with like the band R.E.M., who seemed like one of the three or four biggest bands of the 80s, their stature seems to sort of be eroding, and I'm not exactly sure why. It seems like that was going to happen with Van Halen. Um, But I get the sense that as guitar music disappears from the culture, while there are still a large number of people who still like it, that the connection that they have to those records, especially the early records, um, is just going to kind of exist in perpetuity. I mean, the the guitar solo the eruption. that's like the most important freestanding guitar solo ever made. I mean, it's like there's no. It's like it's not part of a song. It's not. Um, uh, it was. It was formally inventive. There had never been a guitar solo like that. It involved a technique that had never really been seen before that much, uh, with just a few exceptions, and then became the main technique used for the next 15 years. Uh, It's, I don't know, Uh, it's weird he's dead. It's weird that he's died.
0: This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, How would you use it? This is something I've thought about a lot over the last 25 years. Sometimes little kids enter your life. Sometimes you're just searching for that extra hour. Sometimes it feels like all of a sudden it's three o'clock, four o'clock and it's like, where'd the day go? I barely did anything. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority and therapy can help you figure that out. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. Otherwise. You'll always be wishing for more time. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Bill Simmons today to get 10% off your first month, 10%. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Bill Simmons. I'm with you on the guitarist overpowering whoever the singer was thing. And I actually think it's interesting. Well, I Cameron Crowe definitely tapped into it a tiny bit with Almost Famous, even though Russell Hammond and Eddie Van Halen have nothing like, but the concept of the guitarist actually becoming the alpha dog in the band for the fans, you know, and the singer being aware of that, which had to have been one of the reasons they broke up. But I always felt like I all I cared about was that Eddie Van Halen was in the band. If you had to choose, which I don't think you could say about you know, how many bands would you say I picked the guitarist over the lead singer? Ultimately, the band's usually ebb and flow with the singer for how popular they're going to be. That this is one of the ones where I think everybody would have picked Eddie in the in the fantasy draft, right?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, there are other bands I think where the guitar player is the most famous guy. I mean, it also depends, you know. It, it, Not it, like
0: this though. Not like where they're the meal ticket of the band. Like they're. But, the they, entire but band. that wasn't
2: that wasn't the case though. I mean, like David Lee Roth was more famous than Eddie Van Halen, uh, for much of their career. That, like, you but, know, then, that but then he left and on. the band got bigger though. Uh, it, it's true. That's true. And but like on and on like when the first record came out. There were a lot of people who thought David Lee Roth's name was Van Halen. That's what I mean. It, see, <laughs> right. he, so he was such a you know uh, uh, <laughs> did all the talking in the band. You know, kind of represented the band in a way that like like really a frontman like more than a singer. Um, but you know, you, you say you look at the last half of the twentieth century. So you start from nineteen fifty, you go through two thousand. It's like, what are the two defining? they like pieces of equipment of that period. Well, it's the, t- the television and the guitar. Those are the two most important cultural mechanisms from 1950 to 2000. Um, and he was arguably the first, second, or third most talented person at that instrument. So, who
0: Who's in that list other than him and Hendrix?
2: Well, Hendrix is probably the would have to I think he has to be considered the the most talented guitarist in terms of like the, just completely expanding the like the vocabulary of what sounds you could use, um yeah, this idea that it was like that that uh, it it wasn't just a component along with the bass and the drums. It was sort of like this is really what it is, you know, um and it's it's really like somebody like Eddie van Halen probably would not exist if it not had been for Jimi Hendrix, sort of making the idea of like being this ultra skilled guitar player was an important thing. I mean, I would put Eddie Van Halen second, you know, on this list, um, in terms of just like pure riff creation, like making riffs, that would probably be Tony Iommi and Jimmy Page. But I think that, uh, and somebody like Eric Clapton, who was Eddie Van Halen's hero, yeah. uh, you know, but uh, you know, the, the the I think any you take those five guys, and after Hendrix being at one, I think the other four could kind of be shuffled in a lot of different ways.
0: I liked OU eight one two more than fifty one fifty, just for the record, in case you're well, wondering who in your life liked that album more than fifty one fifty. What did
2: you, what did you like about it?
0: I just like some of the songs.
2: Oh, I sure. was just looking at it as
0: you were talking. I liked, uh, I mean, some of them. There was a campiness to it that I think I enjoyed just because it was that time of my life, like I'm in college where a song like uh, Mine All Mine is just so ridiculous. So you're kind of like, I kind of enjoy this, but this is also completely unselfaware. But uh, I thought Finish What You Started was good. I liked uh, Cabo Wabo, I kind of enjoyed. But they, oh, again, com- there was a, there's a campiness to all of it that has to be factored in.
2: I, I do like the song Cabo Wabo. Uh, I, I i probably overrate that song to a degree. I love the way uh the song begins because yeah. Sammy Hagar says you know um I've been to Rome Dallas, Texas I guess I've seen it all like those two cities that he picked? exemplified yeah. the the entire experience <laughs> of being alive it's like if you've been to you know, um you know i i don't i don't i guess oh you way to that's that's okay I mean like the you go to the early, like the first Van Halen record, almost a greatest hits collection, really not a bad song.
0: It's ridiculous.
2: Almost in a, like, it's amazing that it exists. And it's also amazing too, that you can go out, if you go online, you can, you can put in like Van Halen zero, which was essentially the demo for this and the playing is almost the same. It's like, it's almost identically good. Van Halen two was really rushed but those songs are also great i mean it's like that, that just like the, the residue from the initial recording session of the first record left so much good material that they were able to make you know this other amazing record and things like you know like fair warning and stuff it's like in women and children first those are more for musicians they're you know and and, and sort of more of a uh, like a not really hits as much, you know? Um, well, that, at you
0: know, that point they're at that point they're touring and we're in the excess culture at this point too. So I can't uh, imagine there was a lot of time in the studio, you know, cause they're going all over the place and uh, you know, the band was pretty, pretty honest were. about, uh, they were, they're huge partners.
2: They were, they were, but I mean, also uh, uh, like a lot of bands like that, they were able to sort of live that lifestyle, but, also, be extremely prolific. I mean, yeah. I, Eddie, like when I went to Eddie Van, like fifty-one fifty, his studio. It's like that room. he has a room that is just filled to the rafters with these tapes of that he's recorded. That I don't like. Who knows what's on them? It could be like eight hundred versions of like everybody wants them. I don't know, or it could be totally new stuff. Um, you know, and he was like a, he was like a real. Okay, it's like it's a strange thing. Okay, so he plays on "Beat It." I'm sure, like, if he plays the guitar solo on "Beat It," and um, and you know, he he famously did not get paid for that. Didn't even ask for any money for playing on this song. Kind of uh, like changed the arrangement according to him slightly with Quincy Jones, so he could have it be in the right key. And then, you know, his response to that would be like, I don't know why everyone thinks it's such a big deal. Like, it's like, like, I took no money. It's just I played on this guy's record or whatever. Almost as if he didn't really understand the hugeness of the song, beat it, or or like how how much that opened up that record to probably a lot of white people who had never bought a record by a black artist before. So in that sense, it's almost like he has this laissez-faire, almost like uninterested view of his own work. But when they were recording Van Halen records, the re- producer was a guy named Ted Templeman. He actually had a book come out, I think, this year. It's, I read it. It's very good. Um, it's the same guy who wrote the first, like, a, a book about the early years of Van Halen. He's done the biography of, of Ted Templeman. and uh, Eddie Van Halen would go back in the studio at 2 in the morning to fix these little errors that he felt were being pushed through that they were like, no one's gonna notice this but you. And he was like, well, if I notice them, that means they're there. So it's like, you know, it's, so he was like a perfectionist, but he also didn't care. And you know, it's like, he was like a classically trained musician, but then he also kind of made like party rock music for like guys to get loaded in the parking lot. It's like, he, he was very contradictory. He was just like, he could kind of play any song, according to him, if he heard it twice, you know he could play it, he says like if I hear a song like the first time I listen to it, the second time I hear it, I can play it you know um but he also claims he's not interested in new music, like I he hasn't bought a record since nineteen eighty six or whatever it's it's just real he's like it was a very contradictory person, you know his personality, like I think a lot of geniuses, did not really fit in to the normal parameters of how a person acts um like uh, uh, he loved his brother, Alex, you know, basically looked at his brother, Alex, as like this, this, you know, it c- considers him like the only good drummer almost. Another part of me wonders that if Alex wasn't his brother, would he have fired him? Like, I don't know. It's like, it's like he, he loved his family. Like he thinks his, his kid's a better bass player than Michael Anthony. It's possible, but it was always weird that he was so adamant about that. It's like, yeah. he really only wanted to play, with his family, there's a song. There's a record called "Diver Down" from 1981. Oh yeah, it's got, it's got a cover of a song called "Big Bad Bill." Uh, is Sweet William now? It's a very old song. Doesn't sound like Van Halen at all. It's David Lee Roth's choice, but like Eddie Van Halen, while hating that song, is happy it exists because his dad, who was a musician, was able to play on it. Like Eddie Van Halen was very interested in his own family. Like long after he had been divorced to Valerie Bertinelli, they still seemed to have a pretty good relationship. She was like one of the only people, uh, there was like a hundred people who went to his second wedding and she was hmm. one of them, you know?
0: So I wanted to mention a couple things and Valerie Bertinelli was one of them. There were a couple of reasons that he was bigger than just how big he was anyway. One was that he ends up with Valerie Bertinelli, who's a huge star at the time. You know, she's one day at a time was... I don't know, one of the 12 biggest sitcoms during a time when everybody watched sitcoms. I don't even know what the comparison would be now in 2020 if like what her stature was as an actress. But that felt big and crossed the board of the mainstream. The second thing was Beat It, which, you know, just as a kid, Michael Jackson, it's not like he showed up on the scene with Thriller. He was a massive star already, hit off the wall a couple of years ago. But for Eddie to play on that album, it felt like it was like this crossing the beams and Ghostbusters kind of moment, like these two, these two worlds. And the song was so good. And it was right there in the height of MTV, which was the third piece where MTV was able to take some of these people that we loved already and kind of humanize them in a way. And that's how I felt like I didn't really know what these guys looked like. How was I going to know unless they popped on a late night show or went on Center Live or something? It's not like I go to YouTube and see them. But when m t v started, you know it wasn't just like uh the videos, but they would do i they would guest host stuff. I remember they popped on there a couple of times, and you got a sense of like the personalities in a way that I just don't feel like you could have gotten ten years earlier, you know
2: it's weird though, like what was your sense of Eddie van Halen's personality?
0: just to see him, see him interact, and you know it, it, he always seemed like kind of weirdly happy. And I know he wasn't because we read all that stuff, but in those kind of things, he just seemed like this good guy. He just wanted to play music, didn't want to overanalyze stuff. And I remember one time, I think it was when Letterman went to Los Angeles. It was like one of the big TV weeks of my life. I think that was the week. Eddie came on and played with Paul and the band and just kind of was just in the house band for that. And I really stuck with me, like, oh man, what a cool guy. He's just playing with Paul. You know, well, and, and there was a lot of moments like that with him where I just felt like I just like this guy. I'm in on him
2: before the term like hair metal became the pejorative term for glam metal. Um, there was a, another term some, I guess, musicians use called teeth metal, which was like hard rock bands who were constantly smiling while they played. Right. That's, right. Kind, of, that's kind of comes from Van Halen. Yeah, when Van Halen, when you when you would see Van Halen perform, like if you see you know footage of them, even like you know, nineteen seventy eight, seventy nine, whatever, they seem to be enjoying playing so much. I mean, it's almost like it's so fun. We're to, it's just great to be so great at something, you know. Yeah. Um, so he was. He did appear. be a happy person i mean if you see if you go through doing google image shirts of early van halen when he's playing he's either making kind of this goofy guitar face or he's smiling i don't think he was a super happy person to be honest Um, it turned
0: out that he wasn't but i I didn't know that in 1984 um, yeah
2: you know uh uh i i think that there was you know i think there was probably some really dark elements i think to his substance abuse that uh, was And it was almost, you know, it was almost darker because it seemed as though he could also uh, sustain it. Like it it wasn't, there's only really, there's in Sammy Hagar's autobiography, he talks about one tour they did where he felt that like Eddie's alcoholism was affecting his playing. Um, But if you look through most of his career, you know what kind of lifestyle he lived and it did not seem to in any way diminish his ability to play these incredibly complicated runs and riffs and everything. So, you know, and, um, in fact, I might kind of go just going by memory, but one of the things that he had said when I interviewed him I recall, was that, you know, he was like, my dad was an alcoholic, but, you know, never affected his ability to work. And I guess I'm the same way. Like it was, it was like I could do this thing uh, that was destroying my body, and yet my fingers kind of operated almost as a separate extension. That no matter what I was like, his brothers like this too. They would always talk about Alex Van Halen being like basically drinking all morning, passing out in the afternoon, kind of being revived at six o'clock at night, and then playing wonderfully in a concert. It was like they were just there were these these kind of guys from you know, Europe basically. And they were like built to drink. and Right. Yeah.
0: Well, um, I was like, when you were talking, I wanted to see what year that Letterman was. He was on an 84 and the LA thing was an 85, but it's actually on YouTube. And you can kind of see what I'm talking about. Not you, but just anybody listening. Like there was definitely a joy to him that whether he, you know, whatever was going on in his personal life, I felt it you know, when you watch them and you can see in those YouTube clips and I'm glad a lot of the YouTube clips live on. And the reason I think it's significant is there weren't a lot of bands you could say that about, you know? Like a a lot of the bands, either they were super serious or the guys just seemed drugged out of their minds or they were trying too hard. Um, There's this window with Van Halen, especially those first three years that you can see on YouTube where there's like real joy watching them and, and the way the crowd's like, interacting with it where it's like this this guitar god has showed up to their small town or their medium-sized city or whatever and just like kicks ass you know and i think that's going to be their legacy for me it's just like man if i if i could have seen four bands in person in my life at their peak that they have to be one of the four right
2: well yeah you know i i think their legacy is actually going to be the best possible legacy which is the records I mean, mm. I, I know that they're this, you know, David Lee Roth is this outstanding live performer and they, you know, the biggest arena rock for a whole bunch of years. But I, I the, those albums sound so good. Mm. I mean, when you like listen to that, you know, that first record was basically, it's like, recorded live in a way it's like four you know three guys in a studio and then the vocals put on top but they're playing together like it's it's like not a it's not a bunch of tracks put together it's like them just playing and like like a song like like feel your love tonight some of these are like uh like you know just i'm the one these songs when you play them they it feels as though they're being played directly in front of you i mean like you know because they were this is like a something that eddie van halen hated but one thing that they did, and anybody who listens to a lot of Van Halen will know this, is they put all the guitar through one channel. Usually, it's the left speaker, mm. and then all the other music through the right channel. So, like if if you unplugged one of your speakers, you could just hear Eddie Van Halen playing. And it, you know, uh, and so that was both like a like a real gift for guys trying to learn these riffs. True, but it also created this like a, you know, I mean. Okay so like you know like like distance creates depth. So the distance between what you were hearing from the left side and what you were hearing from the right side kind of gave that music a feeling um of uh, it was like it was like a surround sound quality without actual surround sound technology like if if you're listening to Van Halen extremely loud particularly in a pickup like a car yes but like in a pickup especially where the speakers are behind you um it's it was just kind of an amazing thing i mean you know it's like it, it was almost like being inside the music so i think that those records uh, there's not there's never going to be a point when someone's like ah oh, yeah you know i went and reinvestigated those dan halen records and actually they kind of suck or whatever that's not going to happen Right. There was. Uh, I had a. Uh, I remember this is like 15 years ago. A friend of mine was like we were talking about this. And he wasn't didn't really like Van Halen. He was like, uh, oh, you know, like, the riffs are pretty good, but like the guitar solos are kind of astroturf. Like they seemed like kind of like a fake harsh thing to him. And I understand that's actually a pretty adept description of something in a negative sense, which I found is positive. Like I liked the unreality of those guitar solos, partially because I knew they were real. Like if I just had heard, if I just heard Eruption or like um, or say the beginning of like Romeo's Delight, like anybody who's listening to this doesn't know much about Van Halen. Like, go listen to the song like Romeo's Delight. Listen to the beginning of it. You might think that was somehow faked or rigged or like they like they did some kind of trick, like some studio trick, but like I knew it was real. So like, there's just something incredible to me about hearing the unreal and having the conscious understanding that a person did do that. I mean, that's why that Caf- Cafe Washoe was so amazing to me. It's like to stand so close to somebody and see something that I, I knew, you know, it's like, I, I, maybe we've talked about this in other podcasts, it's like you go to a play, right? Say so you go to a Broadway play. And in some ways, it's like watching a movie, you know? Then every so often you like, you'll see somebody spit or you'll see someone look the wrong way just for a second. And it will suddenly dawn on you that what you're seeing is happening, that this is a real event, that these people are memorizing all these things and becoming these different people and they're doing it on command. That's what it was like to see this concert, like to see Eddie Van Halen do these things, which I, in my mind, like intellectually always knew was real. To actually see it in person made it emotional real, and I'm not a very emotional person. Right, like I just I'm just not an emotional person. But like, a, you know, uh, like I like I I think, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed about my memory of this cafe wa thing because I got so drunk that I was really obnoxious to a lot of, I think probably to a lot of people, there's only 150 people there and I was a real drunk person. But part of me wonders if I got so drunk because I didn't want to deal with the actual sense that I was seeing something that I had been thinking about my whole life and had loved my whole life. And now I was actually going to have it happen in front of me. And when I realized that, I think I was like, I don't want to feel that much.
0: Right. That makes sense. I one of the great documentaries that I always wanted to be involved in, which was never happening, was the Van Halen documentary, which never happened. And they would I, I th- never do it. They, they would, would never, never do it. it. Yeah. And I kicked the tires on a couple of times, even with this HBO project, did another tire kick and just like no, Eddie doesn't want any part of it. Access, you know that that uh that music channel Axis, yeah. they have a lot of documentaries. They have a Doobie Brothers one that I love. It's terrible. Um, are
2: you talking they, about
0: Are you talking about the Breaking the Band show? No, no, no. Okay. Uh, okay. Access has a whole bunch of documentaries okay. that, you know, a lot of times bands just produce <laughs> documentaries about yeah. themselves. Somebody tried to make a Van Halen documentary, but they couldn't get any interviews. And it's all like still pictures and none of the songs. Mm-hmm. But they told the story about it. I watched it. I was like, because I didn't know that enough about, I didn't know that much about, especially like how they formed and David Lee Roth part. And that's one of the great documentaries that's sitting there because one of the, one of the reasons it's so great is we have the video of all this stuff. We have all these early concerts with them and these early performances, basically all the way through, you know, and then you have the classic breakup, the new guy coming in, all that stuff. But, well, I mean, um, that's, yeah,
2: you know, there's, uh, on there's YouTube, so many good beats to it on YouTube. You can find a recording I don't maybe it's not still there I haven't listened to this in a while but it's a recording supposedly of Eddie Van Halen playing guitar like in his room when he's 17 or 18 it definitely sounds like him I mean I, I, yeah. I have no doubt you know, um, but it's so strange is that every so often as a 17 year old you'll hear just a glimpse of a riff that would become a song like 20 years later um right there uh, there was also an attempt to make uh, i think a van halen kind of like concert documentary when hagar was in the band um i feel like maybe it was going to be it was a performance in canada or something it it wasn't like live without a net it was later than that but the band killed that um you know they they the, the thing is it's like like every singer the, the if you really probably the best way to understand the van halen story weirdly is there was at one point a collection of every interview anybody in Van Halen had ever done on the Howard Stern show, all collected. Mm. Um, and so then you, you know, you, you, you can hear them have conversations about when they were friends with Rob and when they hated him, when they were friends with Hagar, when they hated him. And, and that kind of, cause the, the, they keep, you know, they did change the story a lot. Like it's still kind of unclear if david lee roth quit or was fired right like, it seems as though we have the answer but not totally like it's not quite on the level of who actually broke up the beatles but it's similar because it's um they they both sort of kind of blame the other person and then when things are good they kind of blame themselves but then when things go bad they blame each other again so you don't know what part is true um yeah uh, greg Rendovs. Greg Renoff's book, though, is probably the best way to understand the early, the early part of Van Halen.
0: Before we go, um, I have to ask this because in sports, you know, we have all these different ways to, to rank players, especially NBA. You can, you know, look at my freaking pyramid. I did. Music is art and nobody tries to do that. Here are the best four bands ever. Here are the best three singers ever. We don't do that.
2: They do that all the time. I'll no, but, it,
0: but nobody takes it seriously, though. <laughs> well, that's there's, true. There, there's it's, no way to
2: prove it. It's less, it's it's more subjective.
0: Now. But what's interesting to me with music, and especially rock, and it reminds me of football in, in a way, where when football, they try to do the 100 greatest players of all time. It's like, there's no fucking way we're figuring this out. But you kind of work backwards and you go, all right. Well, if I'm starting the list, well, Lawrence Taylor has to be on it and Jerry Rice and Jim Brown. And there's probably like eight guys that kind of have to be on it. It doesn't really matter how they're ranked. It's almost like this exclusive club. And they're the first guys that jump to mind because they have to jump to mind, right? If you're talking about who are the greatest football players ever, if you don't say LT in one of the first, as one of your first five guys, I'm like, I'm not even interested in the rest of your list. Whatever Eddie accomplished He comes to mind pretty much immediately when we're talking about guitarists, right? It's like him and Hendrix are going to be two of the, and probably Clapton. They're going to be three of the first five on everybody's list, which is a really hard place to get to, you know? And and I, I think that to me that when you're talking about like, what's your legacy? It's like, he's the first one that comes to mind other than Hendrix as a guitarist. That's it. He figured that instrument out the best.
2: Well, oh, yeah, you know, there's, that, there's the scene in Back to the Future where Michael J. Fox is trying to show someone that he's a space alien or pretend pretending he's a space alien. Right. So he plays the guy, a cassette that says Eddie Van Halen. Now, that's not actually Eddie Van Halen. I'm pretty sure that actually was Steve Vai who, who's basically faking Eddie Van Halen's music. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the idea that if somebody was like, okay, so if I had to go back in time and have someone hear what the future would sound like this is in the 80s of course but like if someone goes back in time and i want to show them what the 80s sound like what would i play well that was the best choice like that was in terms of hard rock music of the 1980s eddie van halen invented the future
0: i agree awesome rock name too it's pretty hard to top eddie van halen as as a rocker name. I don't know. I don't know if we can do better than that. Uh, Chuck, thanks for coming on on short notice. I think, I, I think we both love Daddy, so I'm glad we did this. Thanks for coming up. That's it for the BS Podcast. One more coming on Thursday. It's going to be action-packed football, basketball. Probably the last time we'll have a football and basketball um, at the height, NBA Finals and the NFL regular season. But uh, it's been a crazy couple months here on the pod we went from having nothing to talk about to everything to talk about don't forget about the rewatchables don't forget about bakari sellers he is doing a live podcast right after the debate which you can watch on twitter and then you can listen to if you subscribe to that podcast and we'll be back on thursday see you then